welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am positively fantabulous. I got my county fair teeth in and um, feeling good. Got nothing to complain about except the weather. Well, we're excited to be here with you because today is a topic that we have had requested, gosh, almost since the beginning. It's going to be a big show. It's all about the man under the black hat, my co host. Jim Ross, this should be pretty fun, man. I uh, Wait, I thought I was your co-host, or I was your host. And you're my co-host. I thought I was so the now, host, and you were the. Co- I don't know. How about Shaka Khan? Shaka Khan. I'm excited. Wait, about we this. can't do that yet. Oh yeah, that's the end. There's, they're all over, all over the world right now. People are going. Is that it? What the fuck? No, that's not it. We're excited to do this one. This is going to be a lot of fun. I think, uh, if I'm honest with you, though, I think Jr. is a little nervous. I got uh Eat. People are after him on Twitter saying, oh, are you going to prepare a response to what Bruce is going to say? As uh-huh. I hope he's preparing now. Oh, really? Okay. A little, little cross litigation. I'm not mad at it. I got nothing to litigate. Well, I mean, I just thought it was funny that people were sort of like, uh, are you going to prepare a response? It's like, damn, are we going to bury him? And I didn't know. Cause I've been friends with Jim Ross almost. Well, at least 35, 36 years, maybe. Yeah. So let's talk about that. When did you first meet Jim? I first met Jim like 1983. So however long that is, uh, in Houston, Texas, when Jim was working for Mid-South Sports and the Cowboy, Cowboy Bell Watts, by God, the owner of Mid-South Sports and Jim was doing the marketing, but Jim also had the, the task of the being the host of Mid-South Wrestling, and that had been Boyd Pierce for a while. And what that really meant was, well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Mid-South Sports. My name is Jim Ross, and this is Cowboy Bill Watts, president of Mid-South Sports, and uh, here's Bill. You go for an entire hour of the show and say, hey, everybody, thank you for joining us here. We'll see you next week right here on Mid-South Sports. Yeah, and that's not a knock that's on Jim. That's how his career started. It's just that uh, Bill would talk a lot. A whole lot. Yeah, so. And about everything. So you guys had a somewhat similar start in the wrestling business. You both get in very, very early. You're sort of um, Paul Bosch's right-hand man and, you know, take notes for him and work in the office and, and really just his right hand. And then that's sort of Jim's experience with Leroy McGurk. And then uh, he moves on to the Cowboy. And then eventually... You guys work together there. Is that how you first, like you're in Bosch's office and he's in Watts's office. That's when you guys first meet. Exactly. And cowboy sent bill down to uh, cowboy sent bill down. Cowboy sent Jim down to help Paul with some of the commentary and take a look at the TV. And Jim was the marketing guy for mid South sports. 
and Jim would handle, he would write out all the cards, send out all of the advertising and what have you. But Jim had also become the voice of Mid-South Sports. Bill had kind of backed off from doing the commentary, and now was letting Jim do a lot more play-by-play. So Jim was cutting his teeth at that time, and the Cowboy had a lot more confidence and liked Jim's commentary much more so than Paul Bosch because Paul didn't really do play-by-play. Paul just talked to you, told you where to get tickets for next Friday's matches during the show. So the Cowboy would send Jim down to Houston to kind of help Paul and 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 try to <laughs> try to tell some stories in the middle of matches versus uh, the ticket office at 1919 Caroline on the corner of Pearson, downtown Houston is open each day of the week, Monday through Friday from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon. Tickets and information are available during that time um, that over real- and over. That's really the pitch. You've still got it memorized all these years later. Oh, you damn right. Well, so let's talk about when most, I think a lot of our listeners, uh, first became familiar with Jim Ross when he works for Crockett. And, uh, we've talked about that briefly here on the show before, but famously, uh, Bill Watts sells his territory to Jim Crockett promotions. And uh, I believe Jim Ross helped broker the deal. And there's been lots written and lots talked about that. Uh, I'm sure Jim will address it at some point on grill and Jr. but chat me up. What did you hear about that sale and the way that that all went down? Because this is an interesting time in the business. Uh, maybe even the reverse of what's happening now. Uh, Watts is getting out. Paul Bosch is getting out. It feels like a lot of the territories are being consolidated into one. Whereas these days, I think people would argue that the business is trying to expand and sort of go the other direction, but you weren't in the UWF or, or Bill Watts office at the time. And you certainly weren't working for Crockett at the time. But you were enough involved to know the players. Chat me up about how that deal went down and what the perception was uh, about that deal. Well, first of all, yeah, Paul Bosch was was not looking to get out. I know that our boy Bill Watts was definitely looking to get out and sell his business because the economy had hit, had really hit rock bottom in those southern states in Louisiana, the oil states. And rock bottom, but, but, but I got, you know, back up a little bit to my, my years with Jim and getting to know Jim Ross, who actually was the first guy to say, Hey, why don't you come on? You can help us when we do TV in Dallas and Tulsa. So Jr. was able to bring me on for mid and to work with Bill. So I was actually working in Bill's office too, simultaneous to running the Houston office. And I owe that all. Jim also put me and I was a ring announcer for the television show. Then I became the guy that did the interviews. You know, uh, this Saturday night, Hotlanta, we're coming to you with the fabulous Freebirds. And here to talk about it right now, their opponents, Dr. Des Steve Williams and Ted DiBiase. Ted, Mike, you know, that was me. And so I was doing that and Jim had gotten a lot of that going on. I just told this story last night to one of the, uh, guys here who was asked, asking me questions about how I got in the business and different things that happened. And to give you a little story about you, you've heard my feelings. I'm not a big fan of Bill Watts. All right. Uh, Bill and I never really got along, but I got really sick 
in October of 1986, and I was out of work for 10 weeks. Could not work. I couldn't go into the office because I was highly contagious, had mono, and it was a bad, bad case. Plus, I had insomnia, so I couldn't rest. All this other bullshit. Well, through all of that, 10 weeks gone from my regular job, didn't have insurance, didn't have anything. I came back to work and I, I did, I expected something. I expected to get something, some kind of pay after all my years of service while I couldn't work. I was still doing the merchandising. I was still writing the program, putting it together every single week. I was still doing all the bullshit that I do. And I got an envelope. Said here, we think this is fair and we think, you know, this will, um, take care of you. For the time you're out, I mentioned I was out 10 weeks, right? That envelope contained $400. Wow. Now I, I, I get it. I wasn't at the office, you know, it's things keep moving, but I, I expected a little more and I didn't really say anything. And Jim Ross calls me. And it's like, Hey boy, how you doing? I said, Hey, I, I just got a question. Uh, they, they, they taking care of you. And I said, mm, yeah. He says, yeah, it didn't sound like a real, like a real firm. Yeah. But you know, uh, you all right. I said, well, I mean, they gave me 400 bucks. They only gave you $400 a week when you were out. I said, no. They gave me 400 bucks. The next day I had a check arrive by FedEx from the cowboy Bill Watts for a significant amount, much more than $400. And that was due to Jim Ross. And that was due to Jim checking on me and making sure I was okay. And then telling the cowboy and the cowboy cut me a check and FedEx in it and make sure that I could pay my bills and make sure everything was taken care of. So, you know, that's the kind of friends we were and that's, um, still are to this day. And that was, you know, kind of the early connection. So I'm like, okay, um, maybe I'll think about going to mid South full time and work for the cowboy and, and, and do that. But now there's rumblings that cowboy's going to sell, right? He wants to sell the UWF. He tried to go national and, and this was the mistake that promoters in the mid to late eighties made because instead of taking care of their own business and their own territory, they wanted to go compete with Vince in his area. Right. Well, Vince is coming into Tulsa. I'm going to go into New Jersey. And they didn't take, they stopped taking care of their home, which allowed Vince to come in and beat them at their own game. Uh, Mid-South sports running in the Meadowlands or Mid-South sports running in Chicago at the UIC, that didn't work because our television wasn't established enough. We did have TV and we did have places to go, but we were running events in California drawing, you know, a couple thousand dollars wow. and traveling, you know, on airplane tickets and all this shit that... And it just didn't make sense. So Cowboy was going to sell, and we found out he was going to sell Jim Crockett. Well, the day we had had a television taping scheduled 
and it got rained out, completely rained out. So we had to scramble and make another TV pretty quick because we had to shoot TV to get it on the air. And we had a spot in Louisiana. I'm not going to commit to the town because I really don't remember. I remember the hotel vividly. And Joel Watson and I were, uh, we arrived at the same time and we were sharing a room. We are the only ones there at this point. Cause it was a day ahead of time and we walk or yeah, it was, it was early and we walk into the restaurant. There's no one in the restaurant. We sit down and we have lunch while we're having lunch in walks, Jim Ross, Jim Crockett, uh, Tim, forget his damn name with mustache, but he was a syndication guy and someone else. And they walk right past us. We rent a booth. They walk right past us, go to the other side of the restaurant and sit down. They're jovial as shit, having a good time, laughing and talking. And Joel's livid. He's staring over at him and he's like, you know, motherfuckers haven't said a word to me. It's Kimberly, you know, and, and he, he's pissed. His dad hasn't said anything to him. But he's heard the same rumblings everyone else has heard about the possibility of the company being sold. We finish our lunch and we get up and Joel's pissed. He wants to walk out. And I said, no, nah, man, fuck that. Let's go over and say hello. And we walk across the restaurant. We go say hello to everybody. And Jim Crockett looks at Joel Watts and says, Joel, I just bought your dad's company today. Wow. That was the first time Joel heard it. We left there. We went back to the room. Joel asked for a minute so he could call his wife and have that conversation. While Joel was on the phone with his wife, I went down to the lobby. I called Vince McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hey, it's official. Jim Crockett is now the owner of the UWF Mid-South Sports. I'm not working for Jim Crockett. Now, and well, well, help me understand. Let's backtrack there. I know that. You had loyalty to Watts because Watts took care of you with a good payoff via FedEx, but now you're making the statement. I'm not working for Jim Crockett. Had you had a not so great experience at one of those great American bash events that were recently uploaded to the network and we saw you as a ring announcer or, or was there another reason to be hesitant to work for Crockett? Well, I did have, I don't, it was just. Crockett was an arrogant guy and he was in the, in the dusty mode at the time. Dusty was the booker and they were the big shots and they didn't speak to the little people and the peons. And I just didn't have a good feeling from Jim Crockett. I'd worked with him on three of his shows, bad first impression, bad second impression. And then I just figured oh, I'm getting paid. I really don't care, but I didn't have a lot of confidence in putting the rest of my career in the hands of Jim Crockett at that point in my life. And I had been speaking with Vince about coming up, but that was the nail in the coffin of, of even trying to continue to stay where I was because look, um, I did have a relationship with Jim. I did have a relationship with the cowboy. We were talking about moving me to Dallas when the office was going to move there but I wasn't going to do it. if Jim Crockett was going to be in charge of my destiny. So you make the call so, to Vince and, and we know the story that, that you wind up going to the WWF. Um, do you hear, you know, sort of from anybody else, what they think about the way this sale was brokered? Because lots of people have an opinion about, 
the way the sale went down and a lot of people hold or held sort of a ill will towards Jim for being the guy who helped put it together. They did. And I don't know if it was ill will, but I know that it was Jim Ross that brokered the damn deal and actually finally got it to fruition to actually happen and take place where a lot of that comes from is myself, Eddie Gilbert and Ken Mantell were in a hotel room and we were writing that night's television. We were putting the finishing touches on it. I think we were doing two, maybe three, trying to get three shows out of it maybe, but we had all the TV pretty much written and we're going over it and seeing, um, exactly what we're going to do that night. You know, there weren't these big production meetings and all this other shit. It was just us. And then we'd go get with the talent when we got to TV, when there's a knock on the door and it's Jim Ross and Jim Crockett. And they came in and Jr. introduced Crockett to us. And yeah, we met earlier and I've met you several times before and work for you, <laughs> but you don't know who I am. So Fuck you. Um, but anyway, no, uh, but anyway, they explained to us that guys, the only thing that's going to change is the name on the check. That's it. Nothing else is going to change. Um, the talent remains the same. Your guys positions remain the same. The only thing changes is the name on the check. That's it. So continue with your TV. I'm sure it's going to be great and, uh, have a good time. So we asked Crockett, are you going to be here tonight? No, I've, I've got to go. I've got to move on and uh, get back to Charlotte or wherever the hell he was going. So we go back to, okay, great. Well, shit. Because we, there was a little concern. There were some guys that had bad blood with Jim Crockett that we thought maybe he won't want around. So as we get into this thing, man, and we're still sitting there writing TV and JR comes back by himself. And he says, yeah, let, 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 let's just go watch out for TV tonight. We started going over it. We get to, I think the second or third match. And I believe it was, um, Sam Houston and Jerry said, yeah, you know, goddamn. And we had an angle. I mean, it was an angle we were, we were doing. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, he's going to stick around. Uh, I, I'm not sure he's long for this world. We want to invest a lot of TV time in him. And we look at each other. So thought nothing was going to change, but the name on the check. Well, guys, guys, it's one guy. I mean, you, you know, some things are going to change. I mean, it's one guy. We, we ain't going to make or break it on, on Sam Houston. Okay. it's good enough. Then we get down and we get down to Sam's wife, Nicola. Yeah. You know, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy's got, uh, I don't, I don't think we're going to continue to do business with Nicola either. I mean, you had to know that. I mean, you know, damn guys, it's, you know, they're married. <laughs> we got down to someone else and it was like, you know, boys, I, I think we should probably rethink TV. <laughs> and Ken Mantell was like going, well, Jim, why the fuck don't you just write this shit then? Cause I, obviously we don't know who we have to work with. Right. No, no, no. Y'all just keep doing what you're doing. We just got to make a few tweaks. And it was the most frustrating fucking meeting. And we went and that was the last TV I did for Mid-South Sports, Universal Wrestling Federation or, or whatever. And came back and Paul Bosch did his whole thing with Vince and I made my move and I moved on. 
as Hank Snow would say. I think everybody knows the story that eventually Bill Watts would wind up in WCW of all places. And when he resigns as the executive vice president, that's going to directly affect Jim Ross. That goes down in early February of 93. And Meltzer would write, Jim Ross, whose official title had been vice president in charge of television, took the biggest fall of anyone. Ross will be removed as a personality from all TBS shows effective March 1st and will no longer be part of the announcing team on clashes and pay-per-views. And his final major assignment will be February 21st, Super Brawl 3 in Asheville and the March 7th pay-per-view air date of the January 4th Tokyo Dome card. Ross had been the lead announcer on every clash since the series began in 88 and been a part of every announcing team for every pay-per-view in company history. In addition to being voted the announcer of the year in the wrestling observer newsletter poll by a wide margin for the past five years. So like he has to be the assistant manager of Sonic fucking a, all right. So when he sees Watts take the tumble, uh, I think a lot of people fair or not. I uh, think that, well, JR's not going to like this and, and the new powers that be don't want him in a quote unquote power position. So he's no longer doing the thing he enjoys the most. And, and Jim and I just recently talked about this on grill and JR. You can check it out. Uh, it was our first episode together where we talked about this jump, but when the news, the rumor and innuendo, you know, uh, telephone, telegram, telewrestler, when it makes its way to you that, Hey, JR is not calling TV anymore. How's that received? Well, I, I don't think that I heard it, you know, rumor wise. I think the first time that I actually heard it was from Jim himself. It's funny you say that because he wrote, I I needed to be back where I felt like I belonged and that's on air calling matches and helping the talent get over. I knew that with Eric Bischoff in charge, WCW wasn't going to allow me to do that. So I rang my old friend from mid South, Bruce Pritchard. When Bruce first came on the scene, Cowboy didn't like him and didn't want him in the company. Bruce and I got along great. So through Cowboy, even though he was wary, I hired Bruce to do the syndication interviews after the Sunday night Tulsa shows. And he talks about the fact that you helped arrange a meeting with Vince McMahon on March 9th, 1993. They met at a television taping there in Georgia. And, uh, they were sort of off to the races after that, but even now. When uh, Jr. found out that we were going to be talking about his career this week on something to wrestle, you know, he's like, Hey, uh, I hope you're going to be my defense attorney in a joking manner. And then said, I love Bruce. He got me started with the WWF and he's no credit to you with that. All these years later, how did you explain, or how did you sell Vince on the value of Jim or was he already a fan of Jim? He was not a fan of Jim and what he was not a fan of was the, you know, this guy's a five-time all American, this, and he's that, and he's, um, he wasn't a big fan of the, the, we, we created characters and Jim was into reality and Jim was into, if they were a football player or shoot wrestler, then that's what he exploited, but that's the world he came from. Okay, and that was cowboy was into that. So we're we're real, they're fake. But Jim call, I'll never forget taking the call, man, because we were downstairs in the training room, Vince, Pat, and I. We used to if, go into the office, but we'd have to hide so that people couldn't find us. There was a training room, 
and we would often go in there where no one could find us except for our assistants. And, uh, my assistant called and she goes, Hey, there's a guy on the phone. I think I know who he is. I think I've heard his name before. Jim Ross. He was trying to get a hold of you. And I said, we'll put him through because there was another little room in the right next to where we were. I said, yeah, send him down here. And I talked to him and he explained to me what had happened. I said, okay, um, let me see what, what's, what the temperature is here. I'll give you a call back. So I walked back into the room and I said, Hey, that was Jim Ross and he's not going to be doing play by play anymore per se, at least on the major shows, as far as he knows. And he's, he's lost a lot of his responsibilities there. And Vince says, well, do you know him? I said, yeah, I know him real well. And I explained how Jim had basically helped me out early on and put me in the position of doing the interviews, just like you just explained. And I said, what do you think of it? He goes, I hate his, Vince says, I hate his commentary. And I said, well, he's the hardest working son of a bitch you'll ever meet. I mean, he, I said, he works as hard as you do and loves the business, but goddamn Vince, I said, we can, we can change his commentary if you need to, he can take direction. But Pat was like, Oh my God, can you imagine him in Madison square garden? And he's calling and he got the, the excitement he would bring Vince, a fuck that he's exciting. And Vince thinks about it and goes, yeah, he goes, like, he is. He goes, I just, you know, the college football shit and everything gets, gets to me a little bit. But he's like, you know, fuck it, man. And he started talking about Don Meredith and how beloved Don Meredith was in New York huh. because he was from Texas and he had that Southern accent. And he says, my God, he goes, New Yorkers, he goes, they just loved him because he was this Southern gentleman that was real. He goes, you know, with that Southern accent, he goes, God damn, he goes, we can make, yeah, we, we can make this guy. Yeah. You know what? It'd probably be great. It'd be a change. So we set up a meeting and have him come down and I'd like to, I'd like to meet him. I'd like to talk to him and set up the meeting, man. And that happened in, in Atlanta. Uh, I think we were, I think we were in Marietta. Yeah. He says that when he got to the building, somewhere. you know, he, uh, he recognizes his old friend, Jerry Briscoe. And he says, Hey, are you here to talk to Vince? And, uh, Vince makes it a point to not only greet him, but come out back and, and talk with him. And he spends the majority of the television taping instead of going over what's happening inside the arena, just catching up with Jim, asking questions about his business philosophy and how he got started and what value he thought he could bring. And that's where they first discuss the radio show. And very quickly, uh, they make a deal and, uh, it looks like he's going to be coming to work and he finds out when he gets back in his car and is ready to head home. Well, not everybody was tickled that he was there. No, Jr. got Jr. got into his car and, um, had a couple flat tires and I think they'd keyed his car. Someone had, but you know, Jim was in the unenviable position of a lot of times being the delivery man of bad news. I've been in that position, you know, my entire career as well. So I get it. And Jim had, you know, per his job at the former company that he worked with, 
you know, you're, they were told, you know, you got to knock this guy and you got to knock that and you got to tell it this way. It's what you did back in the day. And Jim was the one delivering that message. So to the talent, that was Jim Ross saying that shit about me. That was Jim Ross putting our company down. Fuck him for trying to come now. Now he doesn't have anywhere to go. So fuck him for coming into our company. Very immature way of looking at shit. But again, in the early nineties, still, you know, it was a very frat like atmosphere and somewhat juvenile atmosphere in a lot of respects to someone that may be an outsider. So some guys that he may have had a beef with at WCW saw him there and then were like, oh, hell no. Didn't want him to be there. Didn't like the fact that he was there uh, looking for a job and did, you know, just mean shit. And Jim ended up, man, and I didn't learn about it. I don't think we found out about it until like a day or two after because Jim told me. And I was like, what the fuck? And then Vince, I'm pretty sure, paid for the tires and yeah. all this other shit. But he, he was he was livid, absolutely livid that, you know, our talent would, would whoever it was. I don't know if it was talent. I don't know who the hell it was. Lots of people have guessed it was probably the Steiners. What do you think? It, it, I have no idea. Yeah. I Because I don't know what the history is with the Steiners as far as sure. him and, you know, WCW. And, and again... Man, it's a fucking work. Right. And we all have jobs to do. And some of our jobs are pretty hard, shitty fucking jobs. And Jim had that in addition to being the the voice of the company as well. So I just think that some guys, whoever it was, took it out on took it out on Jim. All right, Bruce, let's burn our first time out today to tell everybody about a brand new sponsor here on the show and one that well, we know a lot about at my house. Postmates. Now this thing is perfect whenever you forget to pick up a, a bottle of wine on the way to your friend's house, or you just get a burrito craving you can't kick. What are you waiting for? Just Postmate it. Postmates is your personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever kind of delivery service all year round. No more trips to the store. Anything you're craving, Postmates can deliver it within the hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I was not totally familiar with Postmates, and then my wife introduced me to it a few years ago. Man, where has this service been all of our lives? You see, they're the largest on-demand network in the United States, and they offer delivery from all the restaurants, grocery, convenience stores, and traditional retailers you could ever possibly need. Now, here's what's cool about this. You just download the app on iOS or Android, and it's free. And you can browse your local restaurants and businesses and even track your delivery in real time. And for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit in your first seven days. How's that even possible, guys? Start your free deliveries. You heard me. Free deliveries. And download the app and use our code WRESTLE. Why wouldn't you do this? When you use the code WRESTLE, you get $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Download Postmates and save with our code WRESTLE. It's $100 of free delivery credit. Check it out right now. Postmates in your app store. Let's talk about what's happening, you know, back at the ranch, so to speak. He, uh, he resigned 
from WCW on February 26th. This meeting happens in Augusta, Georgia on August, or I'm sorry, not August, March 9th. And, uh, supposedly a deal is done very quickly and, and, and he could be on TV as soon as March 15th. The only trouble is, uh, his resignation called for a six month severance, uh, which Meltzer would say is somewhere around $3,000 a week. And it also says he can't work for another company until August. But JR doesn't want to wait. He wants to get to work right away. So he's looking to get a release. In the meantime, though, this is where it gets interesting. He hosts a, a radio show in Atlanta. It's actually one of the oldest stations in the country and a very powerful station. Obviously, Atlanta is a major market here in the United States, but that station is a 50,000 watt station. Of course, we're talking about WSB. I think it dates back to like the 20s. So certainly one of the oldest radio stations, a uh, heritage station, if you will. And he decides to go on that show and effectively make it WWF radio. And it becomes all about WrestleMania. And obviously there's a lot of folks in WCW who are not excited about that. And what better way to kick it off than to talk about WrestleMania and, and have Vince McMahon as a guest. So we're in WCW's backyard on one of the most powerful stations in the country with a guy that most of the listeners associate with WCW and it's all about the competition. Boy, Vince McMahon had to eat that idea up. Did he not? Absolutely. It's an opportunity to be on, you know, the syndicated show that Jim was on. It had some pretty good reach. Plus you're right there in, in the backyard of Ted Turner's WCW. Were they, they weren't even WCW at the time. Were they? Yeah, I think they might still be in NWA or no, whatever. They're, they're WCW here, but not okay. Anymore. Yeah, and so yeah, why not go go with the the guy that was the voice of the company, and let's talk. Let's talk about how you know he's received, and 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 Jim and I talked about this. His very first show being WrestleMania Nine. It's available in the archives at grillandjr.com. But he writes, I got the feeling almost immediately that the people in the WWF hated my guts, not me, the person, but me, the guy Vince hired from the competition and didn't tell anyone about that man was the alpha male. And he didn't often ask other people's feedback or suggestions. He simply hired, hired me because he thought I could contribute to the success of his company. What that meant on the ground was some people in production and television were reluctant to open up and didn't want to lower their guard and trust me. I was a WCW guy to them coming to take their spot. That's sort of Jim's assessment. Now he does say the uh, biggest exception of this rule is gorilla monsoon. Uh, he thought, you know, treated him with the most class he's been treated with in professional wrestling, but he didn't feel the warm and fuzzies from everybody else. Does that sound about right to you? I would say that Jim probably had that perception. Yes. And I would also say that not everyone was overly excited to, to see Jim. It's kind of like Eric Bischoff. When Eric Bischoff first came over, people looked at him as the devil. Sure. Because of all the things that he had said publicly about the company and wanting to put us out of business that was affecting our livelihoods. Jim was in that same position coming over because he had been branded for so long with that WCW NWA brand. And Cowboy Bill Watts and that same, you know, uh, bulldogged bullshit that people who had known Jim. And here's the other thing about Jim. If you don't know Jim, Jim comes across gruff and angry and a sourpuss. 
Accurate. You got to get to know Jim to get get the fun Jim that it's like, okay, now I get it. You know, I'm, we're going to go out and have a few drinks, have some fun. It's funny you say that because off air, you and I talked earlier this week and, and you said, Hey, I thought we were doing SummerSlam. And I said, nah, I want to do that in August. Uh, we just got ahead on some of the research, but I want to do Jim Ross this week. And I said, by the way, I was wrong about Jim. And you said, what do you mean? And I said, well, he just has this sort of gruff, I don't know, a little bit of a grouchy exterior, but we really got to hang out this past weekend when we did our two live shows, uh, including just a hellish travel day together. And as a result, I got to see a side of Jim. I don't think a lot of people see, and he's fucking hilarious. He has a great disposition and an excellent dry wit and timing and a sense of humor, but I don't know that he always sort of shows his hand on that. Is that maybe like a defense mechanism for Jim or, or why do you think that he has sort of the two sides of Jim Ross, the side he shows everybody. And then there's the really other funny dude. Because I think you have the guy that thinks he needs to be like Bill Watts in business. And then you have the human being. So you have the business side that, that sometimes look, we're, we're a product of his, of our own environment. And a lot of times when you're around someone as much as he was around Cowboys, as much as I was around Paul Bosch and Vince and what have you, you pick up their characteristics and the way that they handle things and handle business. So Jim was judged by his company in a lot of respects, who he, who, who he associated himself with. So th there was that double-edged sword. It's okay. Yeah. You're right next to the cowboy, but you're also painted with the same asshole cowboy brush. Right. So sometimes he would be that asshole too. When you get past that. And again, you get to the human being, um, hard working, you know, fun. I, I love hanging out with Jr. Uh, every, every time that we had cookouts at my house, he was there and we were, we were out you know, cooking, fucking barbecue and, and drinking beer and chilling out. So it's it, just a gruff exterior. I think that Jim perceived people took him that way, probably because people looked at him from what they had heard on television. They never gave, they never had met him and had any opportunity to spend time with him. So at first, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, um, He's a little rough around the edges and so on and so forth. But, uh, Jim just wanted to come in and work and that's all Vince wanted. Vince just wanted him to, to, to get him in here and to actually get his ass to work the talent. I know there was talent that were definitely against him. Um, from the standpoint of people like undertaker, Randy Savage, who, you know, Taker says, that motherfucker brings up my goddamn, you know, college basketball. I'm going to kill him. I'm the undertaker. I don't want to, you know, because Jim would do that. He would talk about Norman, the lunatic or whatever the fuck his name was, and then bring up his past. Well, really? He's this highly educated. No, he was Norman, the fucking lunatic. Let him be Norman, the lunatic. And Taker was like, that some bitch brings up my basketball shit and fucking my college car. I'm going to kill him. And Savage was like, he talks about my baseball career. I'm like, you know, I'm like, uh, guys, it's okay. You know, isn't there like, no, it's not, you know, we, we built these characters. Um, so there was, there was, people were on guard. They 
just were unsure of what, what we had done. And, and Vince was like, you think I'm going to do something that's going uh, to allow him to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Although I got to tell you, it would be pretty hilarious to hear him talk about the undertaker as a fucking power forward and how many rebounds he averaged. Oh, God damn. <laughs> right, take Taker. If take, if Taker would hear, probably would have rolled out of the fucking ring and choked the fuck out of him. Um, old booger red. I have to this day. I don't know where that came from when he called Taker booger red. No one knows, but whatever. So the first show WrestleMania nine, we've covered in long form in the archives, check it out. Something to wrestle.com. But of course, everybody remembers that being Jim's coming out party and he's doing it in a toga, uh, quickly as we move along here, what'd you think of his performance that night? Did he, did he calm everybody down? Did he do a good job? Was everybody sort of relieved all the people who were naysayers and not so sure. I know, uh, I know Vince was happy. I know I was happy. Thought he did a hell of a job. That's a big, big role to step in in your debut. You're the play-by-play guy with Randy Savage and Bobby Heenan, and you're the one directing traffic. You've never worked with them before. The biggest show of the year, biggest show of Jim's life at that point. Sure. And I thought he did a hell of a job. After WrestleMania, uh, he's working on wrestling challenge. He's hosting it with Bobby Heenan and Jr. would write that he, he quickly came to love working with Bobby and gorilla because they both accepted him and they liked how he started in the business, you know, working for very little money and paying his dues. And those guys really respected him, but he felt shunned by other broadcasters, including your old pal, Lord Alfred Hayes. And eventually gorilla sees this and, and has a word with him and, and all is well, gorilla is sort of riding the ship for Jim everywhere he goes here to make sure that people are giving him a fair opportunity. Do you remember having, um, we haven't talked about Lord Alfred Hayes a lot, but is Lord Alfred Hayes in that same category you were talking about where, Hey, he was part of the competition. We're not gonna, or was it something else? Do you think, do you think it was the old school? Oh, he's here for my spot. It was definitely not that he's here for my spot. Alfred really didn't have a spot that Jim was going to take. You know, the guy whose spot that Jim was being brought in to take was Vince's. You know, again, even back then, Vince wanted to be off the air. Vince was looking for someone to step into that. And immediately, the the spot that he, you know, is taking is Gorilla's. And Gorilla's helping him the most. So, yeah, I don't subscribe to that. Alfred Hayes was a standoffish guy if he didn't know you. He's a Brit. He's Brit. Um, it took time. And I think that, again, we are in such a public forum, and especially like with this podcast, with things that you say when it is taken out of context or when someone takes it, just the words you said. You said, I hate so-and-so when they do this, they never get to hear the, when they do this, they hear, I heard you said you hated me. Right. So that's the, that's the game. That's the issue that you have to play with. And that is what was going on. People being ignorant to what we wanted to do from a standpoint of commentary and who the man is and give him a chance and and let's go, let's work together. Let's make this shit work. Let's talk about a confrontation that Jr. had with Randy Savage in the studio. Uh, he says, as soon as he walked uh, through the door, Randy yells, get out. 
And then he gets right into Jim's face and says, who put you up for it? Uh, who got you? You're bringing him here, bring me in here to do all this work. And Jr says, I whispered through my dry mouth. I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, Randy didn't like that reply at all. And he's yelling about the fact that he was brought in to do interviews when quote, I'm not even booked to be here. And Jr would say clearly someone had been in Randy's ear, stirring him up and, and, and Randy's fit to be tied saying, are you goddamn ribbing me Ross? And Jr says, Randy, your household name. I want to get you on TV to help get these angles over. And, and Savage lays it in again, shut up. You think it's funny bringing me in here to do this shit? Do you? Cause if you think that you're and Randy said a familiar voice from down the hallway, the boys are working you. And he tilts his head to the side and realizes it's gorilla. And Randy continues, this asshole brings me in here to do these promos because he thinks it's, it's funny to have the macho man come in to do promos. And gorilla says, Jim's just doing his job. It's the boys who are ribbing you there for a minute though. Randy was sort of concerned that this is going to be a situation to the point where eventually gorilla has to say, let him go. Uh, I mean, he's grabbing him by the collar and the whole deal and fingers are in his face and veins are popping out of his neck. This is a, a weird deal for JR, I'm sure. And not a lot of people have seen this side of the macho man. It's certainly not in a studio. What was it about Jim that just made him a heat seeking magnet, even with someone like Randy Savage? Because I, I think that Jim is the type per Jim will tell you about himself and tell you how great he's doing. And Jim will tell you all the different things that he's doing. And I'm making this change and I'm doing this. And I'm doing that. So he'll want the credit. He'll take the credit. And then when it affects something and someone comes back, so, well, who did that? Well, it's Jim Ross. So Savage being Randy, you know, was going to get in his face and confront him. And I ain't going to happen. Not on my watch. Uh-uh. I'm going to be here and do interviews all day. I'm the macho man. Uh-huh. Yeah. Read my head. It's on my head right here on the brim. And then on my trunks got man. Uh-huh. Yeah. Macho. Fuck you. So. And Jim being the new guy, you know, he's <laughs> Jim's just trying to do his job. Doesn't know a lot of the personalities and, and sometimes how some guys are handled with kid gloves and what have you, he's doing what he's told to do, trying to get through it. And some of the talent were like, what the fuck is he doing? Trying to tell me what to do. I'm the macho man. Uh-huh. And it just, you have to, you have to go through those waters to get in the deep end and swim. And if you can get out there and swim, then you're good to go. But if you don't get eaten along the way, then you're kind of fucked. Okay, Bruce, let's burn our second time out right now. And I got to tell you, I'm excited about this one. They've been with us for a long time. Everybody knows about them. It's for hymns. And I'm talking to you. Is that hairline slowly starting to move backwards? Well, the best way to prevent hair loss is do something about it. While you still have some go to forhims.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Uh, a friend of mine has been using four hems for over a year now, swears by it, absolutely loves it. And you will too. You see hems is helping guys be the best version of themselves with the help of licensed physicians and FDA approved products to help treat that hair loss. We're not talking snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Just answer a few quick questions. A doctor will review. And if they determine it's right for you, 
they can prescribe you medication to treat hair loss that is shipped directly to your door. Order now. My listeners can get started with the Hems Complete Hair Kit for just $5 today while supplies last and subject to doctor's approval. See the website for full details and safety information. But this could cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy somewhere else. So why wouldn't you? Get started with the Complete Hair Care Kit for just $5. But that's only while supplies last and subject to doctor's approval. Go to forhimscom slash WWE. I want to spell that for you. That's F O R H I M S dot com slash WWE. Forhimscom slash WWE. Telling you, you're going to be glad you did. He talks about a conversation he had with Pat Patterson where Pat was checking on him one day. Are you fitting in okay? Pat asked. And JR is trying to be diplomatic and says, it's been quite the, uh, quite the journey, Pat. Uh, but some days I go to lunch and people won't sit with me. Others won't even say, uh, hello back. If I try to talk to them and Pat says, ah, fuck them. You're here with us now. And now JR feels like, okay, Pat's really checking on me. Let me run this past him quote. And Vince has been hinting at me becoming a character too. And I'm not so sure how to handle that one. And Pat smiles and says, Uh, that's something with Vince that I'm not keen on. Everybody has to be a character. You have to be a policeman, a garbage man, whatever. And Jim says he wants me to wear a cowboy hat and Pat advises. He's not going to let it go. You know, if he sees you in a cowboy hat, you're going to be in a cowboy hat. And JR defiantly says, I don't think so. And Pat laughs, shakes his head and says, we'll see. And of course we know. He gets the cowboy hat. Talk to me about the cowboy hat. Now it's a, it's a trademark and it's made him a lot of money and it wound up being the right call, but he was certainly resistant at first. When did you first hear they wanted to put Jim Ross in a cowboy hat? Well, it goes back to the whole Don Meredith story. I was telling you the very beginning of how Vince viewed Jim and the idea behind it was with that voice that people who were hearing Jr. so cold, so cold. And by God, you know, and, and he's talking like this, he's getting excited and, and he's got that Southern drawl. And that when you hear that voice in your head, you, you picture something we all do before you meet someone, you speak to them on the phone or you hear them on the radio, but you've never really seen them. You create a mental picture of what they look like. And you have a mental picture in Vince's head. When he heard Jr. he saw him in a cowboy hat. Don Meredith wore a cowboy hat. And, and, and again, he would go back to that people in New York, when they would go to meet Don Meredith or go that they would get cowboy hats because Don Meredith wore a goddamn cowboy hat. And he f- heard in Jr.'s voice that, you know, I see you in a, in a cowboy hat, Jim. I think that, that that would present a more honest picture of you for what I'm hearing on the screen. And Jim just thought it was, oh, they want to put a cowboy hat on me to, to make me look silly. No, this wasn't a fucking rib. This wasn't, uh, uh, nobody wanting him to look silly, wanting him to be Jim Ross I can identify with Jim Ross because he's wearing that goddamn cowboy hat and that matches that voice and it matches that intensity. And you know, those people down South, by God, that's what he was trying to do. Jim thought he was trying to make fun of him. 
And that's all Jim saw. And Jim couldn't see through the the bullshit because so many people, you know, he, he wasn't embraced and hugged and, oh, yay, Jim's here. Come on in, buddy. I know that you said our company is a piece of shit and that we're all a bunch of goose in Hollywood and nobody here works hard and you're, you know, forget about all those things you said. Some people can't do. And now Vince is trying to make him to the audience, a make him different than what he was on WCW, but also make it more of an honest character with the cowboy hat to kind of fit what's coming out of his mouth. Now you and I both have Southern accents. There's an entire half of the country that speaks correctly. Like we do. (laughs) (laughs) And then you got these damn people up in Connecticut, New York city that have funny accents or Minnesota or whatever, or Canada that they talk funny. Okay. We all have our accents. So everybody speaks how they speak. But when you're in the bubble of New York or the bubble of Connecticut, where I don't know, man, it just, Jim thought people were making fun of him and it was, it was completely the opposite. Vince wanted to make him a character. Vince wanted him to stand out and create something. And Jim fought it because he thought he was trying to make fun of him. And that was never, ever, ever, ever the case. And then once Jim got the hat on him and people started recognizing him out in public, you can't sandblast that motherfucker off his head now. So I'm just saying, I think it worked. I think it worked too. Uh, but for whatever reason, Vince is still not sold on JR on commentary. He works WrestleMania nine, then the King of the ring pay-per-view. But after that, Vince is back on TV and, and Jim's words, I went back to the bench. I went from debuting at WrestleMania to doing some international voiceovers and grunt work and booking the syndicated promos and the talent that went with them. I watched the shows and heard the commentary and wondered what Vince had in store for me, but I began to judge myself harshly. Was it my look, my accent, or maybe I wasn't talented enough. What do you think? Why did Vince maybe second guess himself and put himself back on TV and take Jr. off after just two pay-per-views? I just think it was a feeling out period and was trying to figure out what, what he wanted to do with Jim and, and how, how he was going to fit in. Plus it was Jim's resistance to try the things that Vince was throwing at him. I was like, well, Vince is saying, look, if he's not going to wear a cowboy hat, if he's not going to change some of the style of his commentary, maybe we made a, made a bad choice here. I don't want the Jim Ross from WCW telling me how many times Dr. Death beat somebody in the fourth round of the fucking goddamn OU football game in 1982. I I don't give a shit. I want him to tell stories. And if he's going to be resistant to telling stories, if he's going to be resistant to how we would like to present him, then I'm at a loss as to how to present him. And it wasn't fitting what he saw for Jim. So I was like, okay, maybe, you know, international, that may be a better place for him. Who knows? Well, this is obviously a stressful time in his life. He's, he's nervous about his job. He's, he's pitched Vince on, on doing 
um, radio WWF, and he's going to have some opportunities to call SummerSlam and Survivor Series with Gorilla Monsoon, even the Royal Rumble. Uh, all of those pay-per-views would, would be available on radio WWF. So, uh, it's something, but it's not what he wanted. And eventually some more bad news. He writes that he's having a conversation with you and he told you the doctor said, I have Lyme's disease. And then you asked Lyme's disease. Don't you get that from licking rocks? And Jair said, I don't think so, Bruce. Uh, the first attack, well, I think the motherfucker was out licking rocks in the back is what I think still to this day, but go ahead. Jim and right. He was a lock ricker. Like, he was a, a lock ricker. <laughs> he was a lock ricker. Wait, he was a God damn it. He was a rock licker. Like, like Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> no. Well, like the enroll express, like, like rock. You know, like, uh, stones, maybe. Like he licked stone cold. A lick stoner. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to remember forever. He's a, he's a, a lick rocker or whatever the (laughs) fuck he said. My God, it's too early in the morning. All right. So the first attack he would write happens the morning of the super bowl. And he says he didn't know about it until well, after he'd woken up, he went in the bathroom to brush his teeth. And when he catches a glimpse of his face in the mirror, he realizes one of his eyes is drooping lower than the other. And it's almost as if part of his face is hanging. He says he doesn't feel anything and he didn't think anything's wrong. But when he looks in the mirror, he assumes I'm having a stroke. He's home by himself. So he drives himself to the ER and he catches glimpses of himself. And every time he does in the rearview mirror, he startles himself all over again because his face has no symmetry. His eyes aren't lining up. His mouth is drooping on one side. And he said it was very scary to see his features change and really not know why. Eventually he gets on the phone with you and tells you, Hey, the doctor was wrong. Uh, I don't have Lyme's disease. And you ask, what is it? And he says, Bell's palsy. And he writes, I have no idea what that is either. Pritchard said it's facial paralysis. I told him they don't know what caused it, but they said most people get over it in a couple weeks. So you're going to be okay. Bruce asked six to eight weeks and I'll be good as new. Tell Vince, I won't be down for long. Fast forward and, um, Lisa Wolf calls him and says, Vince needs you to come in today. I asked right away. She said, uh, Jim says he didn't want to go anywhere. It had been less than two weeks since his Bell's palsy attacked. He was in bed when the call came, his face was still uh, paralyzed. He's suffering from blinding headaches and poor vision. And he's got numbness on the left side of his face. But when he sits in Vince's office, he knew something wasn't right. Lisa's there too. So that's a surefire giveaway quote. I knew from experience that it's never a good thing when the boss and the head of HR sit you down. His words to me were very simple. I'm changing my plans and you aren't in them. So I'm going to let you go. My contract wasn't up for another four months or so. So I said, when are you letting me go now today? Vince replied. I constantly wipe my eye and mouth because of the attack. And I said, well, what about the contract? I don't understand you letting me go with no notice. And Vince hesitated in the answer. And that's when he said, I've always heard you were a man of your word. And I made a commitment to stay here through May, even though you don't want me, I'm surprised you're not going to honor your end of the contract. And before McMahon could say anything, Lisa said, well, that's something Vince and I will discuss. I replied, we're not talking about another year. We're talking about a couple of months until my contract is up. It will let me figure out what I'm going to do. And I thought you'd want to keep your word. 
both Vince and Lisa didn't commit one way or the other. So I left, I got back in my car and, uh, drove home and, and told Jan and Jan wanted to know, is it because of your face? I hope not. I said, I'd like to think Vince isn't that cruel. It might've been that I was reluctant to play the character. They wanted the good old Southern boy with the cowboy hat. And he tells Jan, I think we should move back to Atlanta. What are your memories of this? When did you find out? And, uh, how was this news received? Well, okay. First of all, even going back to the day, I'll never forget the day that Jim was diagnosed with the Bell's palsy and all this shit happened. Cause it was super bowl Sunday and we lived in the same townhouses and we had made plans to watch the super bowl at Jim's house, just, you know, get some pizza and hang out and watch super bowl. So all this shit happens, goes to the emergency room, comes back and it's, uh, you know, half of his face is paralyzed basically. And me being the sick, sadistic, um, weird, cruel sense of humor that I have. Look, okay, like right now, I've got six of my teeth that have been pulled that I've got basically county fair teeth in my mouth right now being held together. Still, you can see the stitches in them. And I look like a fucking goof right now. But every time I, I like go to a mirror, I smile and laugh at myself because I look so fucking ignorant and stupid. Um, but anyway... We got pizza and Jim couldn't eat the pizza without holding up his, the side of the face that was paralyzed and he would get shit all over him and he didn't know it. And I, at first, you know, I kept trying to tell him, say, Hey Jim, you got, you know, like some tomato sauce on your face. I said, just swipe over here. Cause he couldn't feel it. Right. And after doing that 20 times, I'm like, yeah, no, no, you're good, man. And he had tomato sauce all over his face, and he goes into the bathroom. Goddamn, kid! Got fucking tomato sauce all over my face. I'm like, fuck, dude. I just got tired of telling you. Sorry. But the, you know, the the whole letting him out of his contract or saying that they weren't going to, you know, and again, the way it was presented to me after the fact was that they were just not going to renew his contract. And I'm pretty sure he got paid all the way through whatever the commitment was. Um, but here's where the bad part comes in. Jim calls me the night before to tell me that he's got to go into the office first thing in the morning. Well, I lived up kind of up a little bit higher than Jim did. And I had four wheel drive vehicle. Jim had a Lincoln two wheel drive and going up the hill sometimes could be difficult. And we had a horrible snowstorm and ice and all this shit. And I know that Jim's got to get go in the morning. So I go in the office a little bit later and, uh, I'm sitting in my office and I call Jim and I am laughing my ass off going, Hey, I wasn't getting up that hill this morning. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't come and plow until like fucking eight thirty, nine o'clock. You must've slid down that motherfucker. And he ain't laughing. And he says, well, Brucey, uh, you talked to Vince yet? I said, I no, I hadn't seen him, man. I said, well, what's up? How was your meeting? Well, uh, maybe you need to talk to Vince. 
as he's saying this, Vince is walking down the hall and like knocks on my door and Pat's door and says, Hey, I need to talk to you guys real quick. And I said, Hey, Vince is here right now. I'll call you back. Hang up. Pat and Vince came in my office, shut the door. He says, Hey, I just want to let you guys know that, uh, we're not going to renew Jim Ross's contract. And I, I, you know, made it effective immediately. We'll, we'll continue, you know, paying him. I think he has a couple months left on it, whatever it is, but, um, we're not going to be using him going forward. And I'm just staring at him. He goes, what? I said, I just fucking got off the phone with him, busting his balls about trying to get up the icy fucking ramp at the townhouse. And he says, ask me if I talked to you. I said, you think you could have given me a fucking heads up? And he says, Bruce, if I'd done that, then you would have known. And then when he asked you, well, you knew you would have had to lie to him or you, you know, I didn't want to put you in that position and you would have been weird around him and everything else. I said, well, it's kind of fucking weird and shitty that I'm calling him and, and fucking with him about getting up a hill and he's been fired. He said, I didn't fire him. Just not renewing his contract. And, um, I called Jim back. I said, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know. She says, yeah, right. Sure. You didn't. Cause Pat and I knew everything. Of course, you know, ah, yeah. And, and that, you know, Vince was very particular about protecting us. He wouldn't tell us when he was letting people go and shit like that. So that we wouldn't be in that weird position of, you know, that someone's being let go, but yet, you know, you can't say anything yet. And I had no clue. No clue at all, but I didn't know that Vince was upset that Jim continued to resist the cowboy hat and continued to resist, you know, the tweaks that Vince wanted to make with his work. Let's remind everybody, this is less than a year, uh, from when, you know, Vince first hires Jim and goes on that radio show and says, Christmas came early for the WWF. And he's comparing Jim Ross to, you know, being the John Madden of wrestling announcers. And his first assignment was WrestleMania and now boom, it's over. And Jim doesn't know exactly what he's going to do. So he tries to get back with WCW where, you know, he left on not the best terms a year prior and Eric Bischoff agrees to meet him uh, at a little restaurant, not too far from the WCW offices. And immediately Eric says, I wanted to meet with you because I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know that it fits anymore and to bring you back would upset too many people. And of course, Jim doesn't know what people he's talking about and felt like he could contribute. But now that WCW won't welcome him back and the WWF has let him go, he thinks it's time to wash his hands of the wrestling business. Uh, but of course we know he's got wrestling in his blood and that's not going to happen. He, he does some work uh, with the Falcons, uh, the NFL team there in Atlanta. Uh, and he lands a, a gig with uh, Jim Cornette's Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But it is a little weird to see one of the greatest of all time, not working for either one of those. And on June 24th, or I'm sorry, May 24th, he decides he's going to write a letter to Vince and, um, he wrote a letter and he published it in his book. Um, do you remember this letter? Uh, I don't really actually, he says that, you know, the only disturbing thing I have heard is that you perceive me to not be loyal to you and Titan sports. This is absolutely not true. 
and runs deeper than any need I need to get into here. I take a great deal of pride in being in our business these past 23 years, and I'm especially proud of my work ethic. And I've told many people that my experience working for you was a positive experience because of the lingering effects of Bell's palsy. I'm having to be creative and finding something to do to provide for my family. And I'm in the process of launching a mail order based home business where I would be responding to fan mail via audio cassettes. The primary promotional vehicle will be direct mail to wrestling fans. And this is where I need to ask this favor. Would you allow me to use the mailing list, mailing list you have developed via the magazine subscriptions? This could prove to be invaluable in me kicking off my home base business. Uh, keep me in mind if there's anything I could ever do in the future, of course, is the gist at the bottom paragraph where he's saying he could help on radio or television or, uh, you know, whatever. what do you think of, you know, Jim at this point, just trying to find something to do, you know, we, we can do some audio cassettes for wrestling fans and we can call some stuff with smoky mountain and we can work with the Falcons. You know, you're still inside the castle, so to speak. You got a feel for your buddy here. I did, you know, Jim's resourceful. He was able to go out and he was able to do some of the things he loved, like Atlanta Falcons football. But at the same time, that's a day a week. And, you know, you have to pay bills. You have to feed your family. You have to continue <laughs> to stay active and grow. Uh, I've been there, done that. You know, you got to reinvent yourself sometimes. And it's what Jim was looking to do to find any avenue that was going to create some income for him and create an opportunity for him to continue to be at least attached to the wrestling business. And I think that at some point in some of this, you know, when you, in the thing you just talked about being labeled as disloyal, I think that there was some people, and I, I don't even know who, but I know there was the reputation and I know that there was the, you know, fair or not that Jim was friendly with Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and those guys, and that maybe he was feeding him information, especially based on the, like the cowboy hat stuff. When very few people knew about that, but Jim made it known and there were details of that that made it to the dirt sheets that reflected how Jim felt. Exactly. The only place they would have gotten that from would have been Jim. And I know that upset Vince. Why would you or anybody tell these leeches, you know, our business or your business? And, and there was that feeling. Um, but I, I you know, Jim going back and, and doing the Smoky Mountain stuff, he's in wrestling. I think that helped. Um, Jim's a talented son of a bitch. And again, as far as work ethic goes, uh, son of a bitch worked his ass off. You know, he wasn't, you can't call him lazy and you can't go in and say, well, you know, Jim Ross won't do that because he'll do it. He'll figure it out one way or another. So, didn't surprise me. And Jim was somebody that we always kept like, you know, Jim still doesn't have a gig. We could bring it back. Maybe some bitch will find a cowboy hat that fits who knows. So th there, there was always a constant, uh, a constant feeling of we can, 
he may give in, you know, he may finally get so desperate that, you know, I'll try and, and do something different and, and realize that maybe if he changes up a few things and, and tries some, tries a new hold that maybe we could bring him back. He was, you know, it was somebody that was at the forefront, um, of people that you could use to do commentary and people that we could use to, to do other things in the company. Cause he had a lot of skills. I guess we should mention here that, uh, this letter actually works out, uh, a few days after King of the ring 94. So it would have just been a few weeks after he sent the letter, he gets a call asking if he wants to come back and do raw. Of course he accepts and he works with legal about his contract. He gets a nice bonus for working SummerSlam, and he's not sure how long he's going to be needed, but he knows SummerSlam's a, a, a high priority. So he gets a very healthy five figure payday and then everything changes because Vince gets exonerated. I guess we should give you the backstory here. This is the time when Vince has his legal trouble. So perhaps the uh, idea is, Hey, if Vince can't do TV, we'll get Jr. But when it turns out that, you know, Vince isn't going to be going away and he's still good to go. Well, that's the end of Jr. here. Uh, so once he, all the dust settles there, he goes back to smoky mountain and replaces his old friend, Bob Cottle. And, uh, a few months later, Vince hires Jr. again, seemingly out of the blue. He gets a call that says, Jim, it's Vince. Are you ready to go back to work? And, uh, I guess they had, you know, had another chance to reassess what he could do and they want to bring him back as a producer and essentially be JJ Dillon's assistant in talent relations. And of course, Jim Ross jumps at the chance to do that. Uh, talk to me about, you know, this offer, this is a little different, you know, we're not, we're not going to have you on camera anymore, which everybody knows is really what Jim wants to do, but talent relations and like an assistant to JJ, is that something that, that you present that JJ presents or is that Vince's idea? It came up where, you know, you had. You had Pat and I there, um, doing everything, including, you know, booking all the towns, writing all the television, just doing everything. And with raw being what it was becoming, it became, it wasn't too much, but we needed to focus on television and JJ was doing the live events, booking the live events and putting those cards together. And I don't think that Vince was particularly happy with JJ doing that. And JJ had a lot on his plate. So, and I think it was Pat Patterson that, that actually said, you know, Jim Ross, he's sitting there doing nothing. We, we, we could use him here. And I went on to say, you know, when he was with the cowboy, he Man, some bitch is detail oriented. None of this shit's going to fall through the cracks with him. He says, do you think he would want to do that? He goes, I don't want to put him back on the air. However, his instincts are good. Maybe we could use him as, as a producer and, and what have you. And Jim came and met with Vince at Vince's house. Uh, we were there and we didn't meet with Jim, just said hello. And he went and met with Vince and, and that was that Vince came out and said, you guys are done having to look at the, the, uh, live event bookings night tonight. And good God, we, I mean, 
<laughs> it was like Christmas for us. Because yes, thank you, Jesus. Um, so Jim came back to to book the live events, the house shows, and to work with TV and produce, as you know, as he said, the, the commentators and the color guys and try to help TV just tell better stories. It is fascinating that he's, you know, helping produce TV where, where he is even producing some of the, uh, announcers, which is kind of fun. And one of those announcers he's producing is Vince McMahon. Talk about role reversal from what we know years later, but Vince is pretty happy with Jim in this regard and encourages him to ride with Vince McMahon. He says, Hey, come ride with me. Listen, that. You've talked about this on the show before, but you're taking, you're, you're taking a major risk to ride shotgun with Vince McMahon in the mid nineties. Are you not? Yes. Yes. Because he's, he's, it's like John Candy in the damn planes, trains, and automobiles. He just becomes the devil. He likes to drive quickly as we say. (laughs) All right. Very quickly. I'm going to read what, what, what Jim wrote. And then I want you to sort of. Reenacted as Vince McMahon. Are you ready? Sure. Beside me, this is all while they're driving. Vince is driving beside me. Vince was singing at the top of his lungs, punching 90 miles an hour on a secondary road, all while quote unquote dancing in his seat. I'm an amazing dancer for a white man. He shouted over the music. I'm an amazing dancer for a white man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he is. He's a great dancer. He's a good dancer. Oh my god, that is the funniest fucking thing ever. I'm an amazing. By the way, by the way, so am I. I'm a very good dancer. Yeah, good singer too. But... Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. And that's with hillbilly teeth in, motherfucker. Nothing against hillbillies. It's just my fucking teeth are all fucked up. These traveling with Vince stories are the highlight of Jim's book, slobber knocker, which is available now on Amazon, by the way. And I think his new book under the black hat is available for pre-order too. And it's like a top of the chart. So check out slobber knocker and under the black hat, which comes out next year around WrestleMania time. Imagine that. Uh, so another great Vince story. I thought I heard something in the trunk. My first thought was. They've put longtime employee Howard Finkel in the trunk as a rib. Is it the car? I asked. Jesus Christ. Listen, will you? Vince growled. I closed my eyes and listened as hard as I've ever listened to anything in my life. Here it is, he said. And he began to fart. Long, bass filled flatulence that eventually finished with a smile of pride from the chairman. You hear it now? He asked. As he cackled with laughter. I made a split decision not to sell it in any way. I sat facing forward like nothing had happened. And Vince was so happy with himself. You know how I get the longevity and smell, Jim? Protein. I ate nothing but fucking protein, pal. Yeah, it wasn't that impressive, I said. Vince's head swiveled in my direction like I had just insulted his wife or something. What? He asked with a menace. He was serious, offended even. I couldn't back down now. It was a test. I was sure it was. Well, I've been around the business for over 20 years, Vince and Robert Gibson. Vince then locks the windows and lets another one go twice. The volume, twice the smell. He's watching my reaction intently as we continue to tear along the highway at speed and his creation was putrid. How about that one? Vince asked. 
He hated to be beaten at anything, even farting competitions. What a fucking great story. You got any good farting stories with Vince? No, but my favorite one, I probably, I do. They, they're putrid. Uh, but the, my favorite is when he would go to the bathroom in like the guests, like in the half bath in his house and then, and then go, God damn it. I forgot my book in the bathroom. Would you, and he sent Jim Cornette in there to go get it. And Cornette went in and like, it's a half bath. It's a sink and a toilet. And. Cornette actually looked around for a while. Vince, goddamn, I can't find your fucking book. But whoever the fucking took a shit in here and, you know, and do shit like that. I do like to do that to my son all the time where I'll be taking care of business and I'll say, Kane, I need my phone. And he'll come. I can, I can hear him. I can hear him run down the stairs and find my phone, come running in our bathroom and go, oh my God. Yeah, I learned that one from Vince. Stinky. Yeah. It's good stuff. Okay, Bruce, let's burn our last time out of the day and let's tell everybody uh, about a brand new podcast that takes a weekly deep dive into a classic wrestling match along with a legend of the squared circle. This is a unique format because it's the only wrestling podcast to focus on one match and then watch it along with a wrestler who was in the match or someone else that has a unique perspective on what took place in the ring or behind the scenes. The debut episode of the payoff has already been released. And looks at the classic Eddie Guerrero, Brock Lesnar match from no way out 2004. And then they watch the match with Vicky Guerrero, who has a fascinating take on the match and what was going on outside the ring at the time. You can check out new episodes every Monday morning. And they tell me they've got a great group of matches coming up. And of course the payoff is available everywhere. You enjoy your podcasts. Uh, so what are you waiting for? Go check it out right now. I think you'll really dig it. Uh, it's at payoff pod on Twitter, or you can go to payoffpod.com or just look up payoff pod anywhere. You enjoy your podcasts. Let's get back to something to wrestle. He tells another story about riding along with him, uh, and being pulled over by an Ohio state trooper. Uh, you got to go out of your way to see the book slobber knocker to get that story. Uh, there's a really fun punchline there, but it's his story. So we'll leave that one. In the it's not you know what actually, and I, and I saw this the other day. Someone sent it to me and, and his story is completely fucking wrong. All right. Well, tell his version. And I'm and going on, I'm going on fucking record to say his story's wrong. Okay. Cause I was in the goddamn car with Jerry Briscoe. I wasn't in the car with fucking Watts and Pat. Okay. So the, the story is, uh, McMahon's driving like a bat out of hell and the Ohio state trooper pulls him over and Vince rolls down the window and says, we just finished producing our national television broadcast Monday night raw. I'm Vince McMahon, and this here is good old JR beside me. The cop says, so you're Vince McMahon? I am Vincent Kennedy McMahon. And the cop says, well, I guess that makes me the big boss man then. And gives Vince a speeding ticket and says, have a good night. And you say, yeah, that's not the way that happened. Not, that's not, that's not, that's not the way it happened. All right. How'd it happen? We're going through construction and Vince is driving kind of erratically, uh, I was in the car. It was Vince. I was Vince driving Jr. run a shotgun. I was in the back seat. We needed more beer. So, well, okay. I needed more beer. So Jerry Briscoe goes, goes to the back and gets to Watts and Pat's car and he gets beer from there. Well, the traffic's moving like two miles an hour. You can't. So Jerry's running back and forth and bringing beer. So I'm taking the beer, but we're locking Jerry out. 
well, he's on the outside of the car and the thing drives a little bit. And, um, we go on and Jerry and I were drinking quite a bit in the back seat. Um, it just, um, uh, goes on. So Vince is kind of hitting cones and they're rolling, trying to make them roll back into Watts car and things of that nature. But he's also driving in the construction area. And when construction ends, he takes off doing like 120 miles an hour. Well, the cop comes, pulls us over, takes Vince out of the car. Takes Vince, puts him in the back of his car. Comes back to us. Now, Vince did say the shit. You know, yes, officer, we were just down the street and uh, producing Monday Night Raw. Like he knows. I mean, like, what the fuck? Vince is dressed in his Monday Night Raw shit. JR's dressed in his Monday Night Raw shit. Who the fuck cares? And so the cop has Vince in the back. The cop comes back over on the passenger side. JR's in, in the front. Shines a light on JR. And he says, uh, y'all been drinking tonight? JR says, uh, no, sir. I had a beer earlier, but not drinking tonight. He said, how about your uh, driver? No, sir. He hasn't had anything to drink. He Vince had nothing to drink. So then he comes to the back seat and he opens up the back door and he, he shines the light in the, in the car and he looks underneath and Jerry Briscoe had like a six pack, like it, it is feet. And the cop looks at that and says, one, two, three, four, five, six. He says, you drank all those beers? He said, yes, sir. And he says, how many beers have you had? He goes, he goes, just these right here. And he counts them and says, you drank all those? He says, yes, sir. He says, do you realize I can give you a ticket for each one of those open containers? Like $180 per open container? Yes, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. Then he shines the light over to me. Well, underneath my legs, I had like three six packs and now I didn't drink them all, but you know, I, I just went with what Jerry said. <laughs> Cop shines light over me. He says, how about you? You've been drinking? Yes, sir. How much have you drank? I said, well, just these right here. And he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, God damn it, son. That's just stupid. We're like, yes, sir, it's stupid, and, you know, we're, we're sorry, but, you know, we, we didn't do anything. So he comes back, and he's talking to us, and he says, he says, boys, I got over eight calls that there was some reckless driver driving through, tipping over cones, driving over 100 miles an hour coming down here, and uh, y'all down here, you're drinking and doing all this shit. And like, yes, sir, you know, sorry, we just come back. He goes, so that really is Vince McMahon I got in the back of my car back there, isn't it? We're like, oh, yes, sir. It really is. That's just Vince McMahon. He goes, well, boys, I guess that makes me the big boss man tonight. And all three of us were like, yes, sir. You sure sell art. Yes, sir. You're the big boss man. We're really sorry. He says, well, he passed the test. We're going to let him go. And, uh, y'all need to pull over at the next stop and get rid of all this alcohol you got in here and, uh, get on your way to your hotel and drive under the speed limit. And let us go. But there were times when Vince would get pulled over and, and like take the ticket and just <laughs> throw it in the back and take off. It's kind of, kind of fun, but I was actually there for that one. Summer at 95, you guys put Jr. back on TV. He wrote that you said you're back and Jim asked back where, and you replied on commentary. 
Jim says, and just like that, with no explanation, fanfare, reason, or logic, I was back out there with both Vince and Jerry Lawler. The WWF were moving their commentators around, trying to get the right mix across the shows. And my name came up. Vince gave me the nod. Uh, so JR is now part of a three-man booth with Jerry and Vince. Uh, what do you remember about this after being sort of behind the scenes all of a sudden, uh, what's old is new again. Yeah. Just trying to mix it up and trying to, you know, I, I make fun of Vince's commentary style. I made fun of it then because it would be, oh my, uh, and then from there, <laughs> what a maneuver. Um, and, and with raw and just with Lawler, Lawler and Vince had great chemistry and it was, it was a way to add kind of that, that Bruno element almost for Lawler so that you only needed Lawler for the comedic relief and Jerry to get his lines in there, but we needed something with a little more meat for the color. And so it was originally almost as if. Vince was going to do play-by-play. JR was color and, and uh, Lawler be the analyst. And kind of morphed into Vince being color, JR doing play-by-play, and King being the analyst to what we ultimately ended up with uh, JR and King. But, yeah, change of pace, just mixing things up and trying something new. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see him back here. Uh, JR would write about this, uh, three man booth by saying that he felt like they had good chemistry right away. Uh, but it's very hard for King and Lawler to go into business for themselves because they're sitting right next to the guy who owns the company. Uh, and he thought that Vince brought out a different side on camera. He was more playful a more mischievous side. Um, he enjoyed working with them. What did you think of the three man booth? I'm not a big fan of three man booths, but I thought they were good. And I think that the reason for that was because Vince did control it and he w- he was able to put a, put a harness on himself and, and tag both guys in when they needed to be tagged in. So the fact that they had good chemistry worked as well, you know, you never knew what was going to come out of King's mouth. And Jim was good at bringing you right back where you needed to go in the story. So I thought they had great chemistry and were good. It doesn't last long though. JR's back off commentary and, uh, put backstage again. And we would see him pop back up doing commentary on the beware of dog pay-per-view. Uh, after they lost power, they had JR, Mr. Perfect. Uh, and they did, uh, some commentary on the matches that had to be redone. And he says later that year during the South African tour, you and Jim had an interesting conversation, uh, where you whispered into his ear, JJ's gone. And this creates uh, a bit of an opportunity because, um, you said Vince wants me to replace JJ and JR says, of course, you've been here longer and know the company far better than I do. And he says that you said. Vince wants to give us both new roles. He wants to make v- me the vice president of talent relations and you the VP of wrestling administration. what do you think of, you know, when JJ leaves and now there's going to be musical chairs in the office again, the first version of things. And then the way things wound up. Well, first of all, I am a horrible administrator. Uh, I don't like to administrate. I'm a creative guy. 
and I enjoy creative. I, I, I like a little bit more free form, um, job description, if you will. So when JJ left and these moves are being made, I think that Vince was comfortable with me because I had, I had done everything and I was, I, I, I knew the job. I knew everything involved in it and he wasn't sure what was going to happen with JR as far as JR's contract coming up and Jim, you know, was talking about going to WCW and I, I may have an, another opportunity over there. Um, so, and, and then I was the one, I was the one having to give the information to everybody. Um, originally when everything came out, I was asked for my opinion of, of what, what I thought we should do. And I thought, you know, Jr. should have moved into that spot and just taken over JJ's duties and let me and corny and everybody else just continue doing what we were doing. And I think Vince wanted a little bit of checks and balances there for whatever reason, but I just felt we were in the wrong roles. I was definitely in the wrong role. Um, I did it. I did it because I was asked to do it and I was, I was happy to help any way I could. However, you know, like Jim said, he wasn't sure what, what that role meant. Neither was I. So we worked our way through it. And as time went on, <laughs> I demonstrated that, you know, as far as details go and, and all these logistics and shit, Jim's a lot better at that than I am. And we kind of, reversed roles and Jim took over the entire department and I moved into, you know, concentrating on development and other things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a weird time because there was a lot of change and people just didn't fucking know, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And Jr. was in flux at the time. But then once he got, you know, ingrained and, and we realized that, you know, hey, no, man, he's here, he's with us and, and let's move. It's um, and I think, you know, the more uncomfortable conversation we had is when JR says, he says, yeah, Bruce, I'm, I'm going to move into that office you're in now. We're going to, you know, we're going to move you down, you know, a couple doors. I'm like, great. I'll give a fuck. And I think Jim was uncomfortable thinking I was attached to the office. And I wasn't. I was like. Next, I just, you know, I, it was a burden off my shoulders, uh, just that, that was hanging heavy because it's 24, look, all of us are 24, seven, we're 24, seven now, but then it was, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was a difficult, fast moving, a uh, lot of moving parts. Vince and I still did. You know, even, even when Jr. took over, Vince and I still would do a lot of the preliminary talent stuff. Um, but Jim was just much better, much better at the role than I ever could have been. And, and I think, you know, I dare say that as far as that role in talent relations, Jim was probably, you know, the best at that over the years. JJ was, JJ was good. Pat was, Pat was good. Um, 
I don't, I don't even think I've been rated the worst. I think that, uh, there were like two people in there that were worse than me that had nothing to do with the wrestling business, <laughs> but, um, it's just a tough job. It's the heat. It's the heat job. So then I, I became the heat magnet for, for JR and Vince. I'm the one that delivered all the bad news. Then I never got to give anybody any good news. Let's talk about, uh, September 6th. It's a, uh, special edition of raw on a Friday night. This is the first time that Jr. really becomes involved in an angle. Uh, it's the regrettable fake diesel, fake razor angle. Where can you tell me about this and, and how Jr. from Jr.'s perspective? Well, from Jr.'s perspective, I think that he, he didn't understand why he would be a heel and Jr. is a heel in real life. So we thought we'd put that on screen there. Jr. had credibility. So for Jr. to tell us that razor and diesel are coming back, the audience is going to believe good old Jr. because he's not going to lie to me. And we did bring razor and diesel back. So in using Jim, you were using that credibility to say for people to go, Holy fuck, what's going on? Cause you'd seen Scott Hall and Kevin Nash on the competitor show. And now here's an opportunity to, the, oh my God, they're coming back. So that, that was why we used JR to just to get that message out there and associate him with razor and diesel right from the get go. It's not the best angle in the world, but, uh, you know, JR does a great job with the promo. You know, he comes out and cuts, uh, almost like a work shoot promo where he's talking about the real life hiring and firing and trials and tribulations he's had, he's had of, um, of working with Vince McMahon. And that happens on the September 23rd raw. What did you think of the, uh, the promo that he cut that day? Because if you haven't seen it, you should go out of your way to see it. Maybe we'll link it on our social, but it's September 23rd, 1996. And, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of realism in that promo and, you know, not a lot of fans knew the backstory. This is before, you know, information was as readily available on the internet as maybe it is now. What'd you think when you see Jr. deliver this impassioned promo in the middle of the ring? I thought it was great because it was real. It was all the shit that Jim had said. It was all the shit that Jim had actually lived and been through. So for him to go out and say all of the things that he said, that was coming from the heart and it was everything that he had lived through and experienced. And those stories were already out there. So now it's an opportunity for him to tell it in an entertaining way and make it part of a storyline that made sense. And people believed it because it was true. Yeah. I mean, they did believe it because it had so much realism to it. And supposedly, you know, depending on who you believe it even gets a, a bit of a raise for Hall and Nash on the WCW side of things. Um, let's circle back for a minute though, and, and talk about, you know, the build for WrestleMania 12. And that was of course a little earlier in 1996. Uh, he's going to, to interview Brett in Calgary as, as Brett is getting ready for his Ironman match with Shawn Michaels. And he had an opportunity to go down to the dungeon and see, you know, Stu and Brett working through some things. And Jr. writes that Stu wanted to put Jim in some submission holds. 
uh, chat me up. What, what did you hear about this? Have you ever met, let Stu stretch you in the dungeon? Uh, does the news of JR being in, in Stu's dungeon, working through some holds, make it, make its way back to the office. Oh God. Yes. Because if you're crazy enough to go into the dungeon with Stu, which by the way, I've never been to the, to the hard house or to the dungeon. However, I have had Stu. Yeah, let me, uh, if you take this uh, and you take your wrist, uh, then you put it by here by your elbow and then watch it and then lift it. Ah! <laughs> you know, um, and that was, you know, JR talking about, yeah, goddamn Danny Hodge and Danny Hodge, you know, great shooter and he's got all this hand strength, badass, some bitch. Yeah, I take you. You got big hands. Oklahoma, huh? You fucking pussy. Yeah! Goddamn, goddamn fucking stew shit. Hell, my elbow don't go there. That's a fresh. So, yeah, still stretch you if you give him the chance. Yeah. What a, what an interesting man. Uh, Mick Foley is a story that, uh, is told a lot with Jim Ross. And, uh, I think maybe it was in Mick's book that, um, Jr is, uh, is credited with pushing to get Mick signed and supposedly, um, and I can't believe this is real. Vince agrees to do it. Well, here's the explanation. I'm going to let you bring Foley in because I want you to learn how it feels to have your heart broken by a character you think is going to be a star. And then ends up being the shits. <laughs> what do you think of? <laughs> I can just see your face. What a there. What do you remember about uh, Jr. pushing to get Foley in? Well, first of all, we had seen Mick Foley at uh, LaGuardia Airport one day. This is when he was Cactus Jack. I don't know if he was, he might've been working for WCW at the time, but Vince didn't want to meet him because he was felt that he was dangerous and felt that he, uh, was going to have a very short lived career. And he just thought he was doing indie shit that was not going to work. Um, Jr. very high on Mick Foley and I was very high on Mick Foley and especially the stuff that Mick was doing in ECW at the time because he was doing the, the I, I'm hardcore shit, but he was doing all, you know, riding on a little tiny merry-go-round and we're hardcore, we're hardcore. And it was hilarious. And you were getting to see his personality. Um, and we went to Vince and said, Vince, would you just at least meet the guy? And Jim was, was adamant, you know, just, can we please just talk to him, get to meet him for a minute. And Jim felt that, you know, I felt as well that, that this was an opportunity for Mick to get over and Vince greeted him as Mike, uh, <laughs> instead of Mick, but as would be the case, fell in love with him and mankind was born, but we had come up. It was like, okay, you don't like cactus Jack. We'll hide his face. We'll come up with some kind of mask or something to hide his face. You won't know it's Cactus Jack. You don't have to be Cactus Jack. And that's how mankind was born. And it was after Vince meeting him and, and falling in love with, um, with Mick Foley. 
uh, and, and obviously became one of the biggest stars in the history of the business. And absolutely the, the other big star that I think Jr. is most closely associated with is stone cold, Steve Austin. And, um, there's a famous story where Steve really wants to be a baby face and Jim is encouraging him. Hey man, you're going to be the hottest baby face we got. And Steve just thinks this is just, you know, the worst possible scenario and he's fighting mad, you know, and then eventually according to the rumor and innuendo, JR would say, I don't know if that's the worst thing, man. They make a lot of money. These baby faces do on merch sales. And one day he brings him, uh, copies of checks with the names and info redacted. So you can't really tell who's who, but you see some of these baby face payoffs for merch and all of a sudden. Uh, Austin magically becomes okay with being a baby face immediately. And, uh, those t-shirt sales were just record setting for Austin. What can you, how would you categorize the relationship and what can you tell us about the relationship that Jr. had or has with stone cold? Well, they're, they're best of friends and they became friends because, you know, through Jim's career heading talent relations, the, the number one talent was stone cold, Steve Austin during a lot of that tenure. So you're taking care of your top talent. You know, we had brought Steve in before and uh, met with him at Vince's house. And Steve had no interest in coming in. And then later on, after Steve was fired um, and Paul Heyman had called, said, look at this shit we're doing. And and we're going, well, yeah, man, um, that's good stuff. And we're able to finally convince Steve to come in and... You know, I'd been a big fan of Steve's for good God years from the, the days of WCW was stunning Steve. And I thought he would be the next Ric Flair, but finally got him in and he and Jr quickly, you know, had a bond and continues to this day with them being friends. But it was the, you know, Austin three sixteen, that was a heel character in the beginning. And Austin 316 shirt sold when he was a heel. It still took him a while to turn all the way babyface. The audience turned him, and Steve did fight it. Steve didn't want to do it. Steve thought, God damn, I'm a heel, kid. Uh, but he ultimately biggest babyface of all time, probably. Uh, not probably. I think most people would say uh, he's the tippy top guy. Uh, I guess we should. Fast forward to 1997, we're going to see, um, Jr. do a little bit of a departure. You know, we do sit down interviews a few times that year, uh, one with man, a series with mankind, uh, where we learn more about the mankind character. And of course we finish that series of interviews with a mandible claw, uh, which we've recently talked about here on the show for mankind. We would do the same thing, sort of a work shoot type, uh, vibe or environment with gold dust. And Marlena, why was Jr. the right guy for those? What can you tell us about those? Was he excited about this? Um, what can you tell us about these sort of sit down interview formats with Jr. at 97? Because it was a departure and it was something that was, uh, someone that the audience was familiar with and trusted. And Jim Ross was the, that voice. So for Jim to be able to go in, he could ask you the questions that you're not going to have an interviewer go ask. And I don't even remember who the hell we even had as an interviewer at that time that people would have accepted. So for Jim to go in, you accepted the in-depth interview and you accepted the fact that he was the one asking these hard hitting questions because it was good old Jr. And that role fit him. 
So the, the audience believed it and it made sense. Uh, no doubt they, they were into it and it, it gave another layer. And I think JR was probably the right guy for it. But, um, eventually we start to see the seeds, uh, of the Mr. McMahon character in 1997. Uh, of course that's going to be November of 97, but before we get there, we've got to find something for stone cold to do. I think everybody remembers that, uh, SummerSlam 97, Austin was, uh, injured in his match with Owen Hart. And as a result, you guys were trying to find a way to keep Steve on TV, even though he can't compete in the ring. So at ground zero, uh, which is, uh, in your house from September of 97, Austin hits Jr. with the stunner. Talk to me about that creative and how Vince felt about putting Jr. in the ring and how Jr. felt about doing some physicality like that. I think Jr. loved it. Um, he'll tell you, no, I got damn, I'm not a wrestler. I didn't want to do that, but he loved it. But it, again, it was getting over that stone cold character that the rattlesnake will bite any and everybody in the DTA. Don't trust anybody. That was more building Steve's character. And even the guy that's shouting his praises the most, he can't even trust him because he's a damn rattlesnake. And that was building that character more. And I dare say Stun and JR made Steve even more popular because told him no one's safe. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool story because you don't expect to see anything physically happen to JR like that. Uh, let's talk about, you know, what's next for Austin though, is going to be his feud with Mr. McMahon, this evil heel owner character. And a few months later. After this, Mr. McMahon character is rolling. Vince says to Jr. you know, Jr. there's a difference between Mr. McMahon on TV and Vince in real life. And Jr. said, really? And what might that be? <laughs> and he says, Vince struggled to answer, but, uh, McMahon was an, or Mr. McMahon was an over the top version of Vince. Do you agree with that assessment? Just an over the top version. Yes, he is an over-the-top version of Vince, but he's very close to the the real, you know, the human being. It's just the volume is turned up as fucking loud as it'll go. With the Mr. McMahon character you see on TV. Yeah, I mean, I think most people would say would agree with Stone Cold's assessment that the best characters in wrestling are, you know, just you with the volume turned up, as you said. And of course, the Stone Cold era starts in 1998. Uh, we know that, uh, Austin's going to win the world title at WrestleMania 14 and, um, throughout 98, I think that's really when Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross sort of come into their own. Uh, now that Vince McMahon is out of the booth and we've got a two man booth famously, you know, King of the ring 98. I mean, that's gotta be, uh, without question, Jim Ross's most famous call, right? The hell in the cell call. Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. I think he killed him. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the most replayed, you know, clip and it's the voice of a generation. In December of 98, he's in England for the capital carnage pay-per-view, uh, when his wife called, uh, and told him that his mother had passed away and the next night at raw, he starts to feel some strange sensations. He's got a throbbing headache and the audio coming through the headphones is now painfully loud and every noise feels like it's going to kill him. His eye won't blink. His tongue goes numb. He's having another Bell's palsy attack right there, but he says this one felt much different maybe because you know, the, he was awake for this one, uh, but he thinks that he 
triggered the attack by putting himself under so much stress of suppressing the grief of losing his mother and not dealing with his feelings and instead focusing on the broadcast. Were you there that day when, when he had this second Bell's palsy attack? Yeah, I sure was, man. I was with him the night when he found out about his mom and, and that was a tough night and he just, you know, Jim was raised that you really don't show your emotions and, and you power through. So he did what he had to do and he, his job was to, to get on the show and get through it. And the bell's palsy hit him, man, and hit him hard. And this one, while the other one may have been painful, uh, and, and a lot of this, this one hurt, like was, he was in a lot of pain going through it is what I remember most because it was maybe the other one happened in his sleep. This one happened while he was wide awake and, and he experienced it. And it was, it was, uh, kind of like having a heart attack. You, you, you remember that pain and you just go through it. He powers through the show and, uh, immediately afterwards, he says that Vince had him, um, uh, an appointment with the finest neurologist in Connecticut. And, uh, they confirm, of course it was Bell's palsy and they haven't yet figured out what caused it or how to cure it. And, um, he's obviously going to miss a little bit of time here. And Vince writes him a handwritten note that says, dear JR, it's not the number of times you get knocked down in life that counts. What counts is the number of times you get the fuck back up. So get the fuck back up. Give the stone cold hand sign to everyone who wants you to stay down. Use the love, respect, admiration, strength, and will of your friends and family to bolster your spirit, restore your confidence and help you face the challenges of the future. You've come a long way, Jr., and you've earned a great deal of respect and admiration from your family, friends, and foes. However, quote, that was yesterday. I need you. Your family needs you and your company needs you to help carry the WWF into the future. Black hat and all. JR, you have my utmost respect, appreciation, and love. Your friend, Vince. P.S. There are 5,000 reasons for you to celebrate this Christmas in an envelope on my desk, which will be presented to you on your first day back at the office. Pretty nice little humanizing side of Vince that fans don't hear about a lot, huh? Well, yeah, that's the part that, you know, people uh, tend to forget that, you know, he is a human being and he's always been more than fair and very generous. So yeah, I mean, that kind of sums a lot of it up right there. I guess the thing that, uh, a lot of people remember about 1999 is that Dr. Death, Steve Williams, uh, is going to come into the company and you guys try to turn heel or turn Jr. heel and, and Dr. Death is going to be his bodyguard. Um, I think that goes down on like March 8th. Um, the storyline of course is McMahon has fired him because of his condition and Steve Williams is here as his personal enforcer and he's going to confront his replacement, Michael Cole in the ring. And Cole of course is going to insist he's not trying to take Jr's job. And then Jr is going to low blow Michael Cole. And then he's going to set up his own little announce table, uh, with a little, uh, label on it that says Jr is raw. This of course doesn't last. I thought it was kind of fun for what it was. What'd you think? I thought it would have been great. And I think that JR just didn't embrace JR didn't want to be a heel. 
if he would have embraced it, I think it would have gotten over like a million bucks. In addition to that, I think that, you know, Doc coming back off of the brawl for all debacle with his hamstring and all that shit, you know, Doc was trying so hard to get over and Jim was trying so hard to get Doc over that it kind of worked against him. And unfortunately, people were getting hurt on some of Doc's suplexes and things like that, that it became, well, Doc's hurting people and we can't, we can't have him hurting people. And if that's the only way he can work, then he can't work here. So there were a lot of reasons why it didn't work. I mean, there was Jesus Christ. There was the time that he had me manage doc for a night and it, it, after the, the hamstring shit and the brawl for all Dr. Death was never the same. However, I think that in this instant, because Jr. was over, I think if Jim had embraced being a heel and gone for it, people were dig, man, the Jr. is raw fucking having his own announce table. To me, that was some of the best shit, funniest shit we ever did. I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I wish, you know, we could have seen more of it, but we know that Dr. Death is not long for this world. Um, JR is going to be back to call the WrestleMania 15 main event, which of course is, uh, stone cold and the rock and it's Philadelphia. And, uh, it sort of catches him off guard because you know, he's told by Vince, Hey, bring your tux to Philly. And JR didn't expect that. And he says, why? And he says, I'm putting you back to work. What for? You're going to call the main event. You're ready. And he says he found out later that Austin had rock had personally requested that he be the guy to call the match. How many performers would prefer Jim Ross call their match over most others in that era? Well, I think in that era, a lot of them would because of the emotion and just the, the storytelling abilities of Jim Ross and in this particular situation where you've got the two biggest stars going head to head, they they wanted it to be special. They wanted it to be different than the rest of the card and to help make it different is to give it a different soundtrack as well. So yes, the, the talent did go and ask for Jr. to do it. It's a big deal. And, uh, of course, Philadelphia, of course, famously is the city that booed Santa Claus, but man, they're excited to see Jim Ross back. He gets a big reaction. Uh, he's right back in the saddle again. How did you think he did calling the main event at WrestleMania 15? Oh, I did fine. You know, it, it's, um, I don't know if it was his best call because I think that he rushed through an awful lot of things because he was just so damn excited to be out there. And I think he was trying to, to get everything that had been inside of him with him being off the air in, in that one match that it makes any sense. Yeah. So after this, JR is back on the commentary table on raw. And of course we know that when the XFL comes to be, he's even doing some commentary there. We've talked about that briefly on our XFL episode, but even though it's probably not in this way, maybe this wasn't exactly how he envisioned it. It's probably a lifelong dream for Jim to be calling football. Is it not? Absolutely. Jim always wanted to do either OU football or Atlanta Falcon football. That was his dream. And he got to do it on radio and what have you, but now to be, you know, a part of a national promotion on broadcast television and the XFL, this new league, and he's calling football, which is probably his first love. Um, it was a big kick for him to do it. It still was 
to the football audience and to the general audience, you got a wrestling guy doing football. Regardless of how much passion Jim had for football and love and knowledge, it was still a wrestling guy doing football. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, let's talk about the night after SummerSlam 99. Uh, I think most people know that that's a, a big day for Triple H. Uh, he's going to come out for an interview with JR. And in this segment, Triple H puts JR in an arm lock and threatens to break his arm unless the new world champion Mankind comes out and agrees to give him a title shot. Of course, this brings Foley out. He agrees. And then Triple H breaks his arm anyway. And this is kind of fun because uh, when Triple H goes to break JR's arm, you guys pipe a sound effect into the broadcast, but it's out of sync by a second. So we hear the arm break after <laughs> Triple H broke JR's arm. Uh, are you in the back when with Vince when this happens? What's the reaction? Conrad, I think that was just your Alabama TV was a little out of sync that night. Okay. The rest of the world, it was on time. The rest of the world, it was fine. And any of you, you know, if you were watching it on direct TV, I think direct TV was out of sync and, and Comcast cable might've been out of sync on some of the audio and shit. It happens every once in a while, you know, like when you're changing channels. Sure. No, I get and it. Yeah. And they're moving the lips, but really they go, I will get indeed. Um, yeah, that's all it was. Just... He has his first wrestling match later that year too, uh, October 11th. Jr. is going to be teamed up with Stone Cold <laughs> Steve Austin to take on Triple H in China. Goes to a no contest with China beating up Jr. in the ring the whole time. Um, I mean, is Vince having the time of his life booking Jr. in these awkward positions or what? Well, again, Jr. is a sympathetic character being in, in Jr. with the way that he would call stone cold matches. It was obvious there was some favoritism there. So you're going to go that far. You're not going to be that impartial and, and you know, so, you can't deny it. So put him in there. And if you're going to get, if you're a heel, I can't do too much bad shit to Austin, but I can sure as hell do it to his little buddy down there. And it, and it helped get heat. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I, I know he've been, he's been critical of that. And a lot of wrestling fans have too. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of what's going on behind the scenes though. You know, JR's not super involved in the storylines. He's still doing the announcing on TV. He's still the executive vice president of talent relations. Uh, there is a, a blip in the radar though. When Lawler leaves in 2001, Paul Heyman's going to take his spot over. I think a lot of people were probably hesitant because we had become so familiar and really fell in love in the past, I don't know, three or four years with Jr. and the King as a, as a duo, but I thought Paul Heyman did a really nice job with Jr. What'd you think? Well, you know, you and I just did WrestleMania 17 available in the archives folks. And I think that this was the best commentary, you know, I forgot how good Paul was, but I think it's probably the best commentary. It's my favorite WrestleMania, but listen to the commentary on this jr and Heyman had worked for years together prior to this in wcw or nwa whatever the hell they were at the time and they when they got back together it was like old times and they clicked they worked well together you had the obnoxious new yorker and the you know the southern good old jr ready to rock and roll and you felt it and it was good yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't know what it was about their chemistry, but it certainly worked for me. Uh, a few days after WrestleMania 17, 
where Austin beat the rock for the title and turned heel, uh, we would see a SmackDown in Oklahoma where Jr is going to conduct an interview with Austin and Austin's going to attack him and beat him up. Uh, there's a brand extension, which leads to, uh, the draft in O2. Jr is going to stay on raw, uh, as a result of that. We're also going to see Jr have his second match towards the end of O2, December 21st. It's raw number 500. And he's going to team with Jerry Lawler to take on Lance storm and William Regal. Uh, then as we cruise on into O3, uh, the Eric Bischoff character is now the general manager on raw and he's going to fire Jr because it's Jr's fault that he couldn't sign Steve Austin fast forward a week and Jr wrestles Eric Bischoff in a no holds barred match. This is like out of a fever dream, Jim Ross and Eric Bischoff in a no holds barred match. What do you remember? <laughs> well, goddamn, he kept my refrigerator from me for months. Goddamn, they stole my damn. Bruce, they got my they got my refrigerator hostage. When Jim came over from WCW, I guess he had a refrigerator and some other shit, washer and dryer, some other shit in storage. When we tried to get it out, Eric wouldn't release it or something. So that's that's all uh, that's all I can remember about this was. The fun I had with Jr. going, goddamn Jr. You gotta, you, you gotta get back at that son of a bitch for holding your fucking refrigerator hostage all those years, and it, it was, it was just classic. Eric was the guy that fired him at WCW. Eric fires him here, and it was, it was two real life rivals now coming together in the theatrical world and having fun with it. And it was, it was what it was. It sure as hell wasn't pretty. It's for damn sure. I guess we should remind everybody it's the end of this match where Eric wins and, um, it's because, <laughs> uh, Jr. does a blade job when Eric kicks a cinder block on his head. So they break a goddamn cement block over Jr.'s head. He's busted in half. Ladies and gentlemen, he's been lacerated. Eric's a karate man. I'm a three-time black belt hall of famer. Let me tell you that kind of kick to the head in and of itself would have split Jr's head open like a fucking watermelon, but add to that, the concrete block and shit. Let's fast forward. Still alive. We're not done on February. We break a cinder block over his head in July. We have Kane set him on fucking fire. What is it in, in, in this year here, 2003, where Vince really, really enjoys putting your boy through the ringer. Setting him on fire was absolute pure classic shit, probably for the rehearsals more than anything, because the guy, the, that was being set on fire, like caught on fire (laughs) during the rehearsal and JR was never even close to getting burned, but he's just looking at this goddamn fucking ridiculous. The fuck? Why are they setting me on fire? I said, it's good shit. And you had to have, you know, JR off screen screaming, Arr! 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 Um, I thought it was highly entertaining shit and got people talking. People, I mean, but you know, it's funny. You say, oh, it was silly shit. Fuck, it was silly shit. It was good shit that made people talk about it and got people interested. Hey, they set a fucking goddamn announcer on fire. I got to see this shit. You're turning the channel to watch what the hell we're doing next. So in that vein, it worked. It was good shit. 
Arr! Arr! You set an announcer on fire and called it good shit. Yes. We're not done. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me correct that. It was great shit. You've been hanging out with Vince again a lot. I can tell. Great shit, pal. Oh. God damn it. Unforgiven 2003. JR is going to team up with Lawler to wrestle Coach and Al Snow, uh, with the winners becoming the broadcasters on Raw. Of course, Coach and Snow win after Jericho interferes. The September 29th Raw. This has got to be a rib. JR is wrestling Coach in a country whipping match, and the Raw broadcasting job is on the line. I mean, a country whipping match. This is just an excuse to see your friends have the shit beat out of them with belts. Right. I mean, there's no way to work that. No, we had working whips, working whips. Listen to you. You get them over at the whips are us store. Jr. winds up winning the match with a stunner and, uh, he and Lawler get the commentating job back. Uh, thankfully Jr. the next few years is just sticking to commentary, but we're not done April of Oh five. He's going to have a match against a young upstart named triple H. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose you'd want him to beat triple H with his fucking finish. What's JR's finish. Uh, arr, arr. <laughs> fucking no. Yeah. How, how have we gone this whole time? And we haven't hit your favorite JR phrase. Sash fresh. He, okay, he really doesn't like when we do that, by the way. Why? Well, now that I'm he does that in real life. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Is it, what's funny is I think so many people like they think that Michael Hayes really walks around saying Dave, Dave, Dave. And that Jr. every time he like sits down in his chair says, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Ah, <sighs> so in, in you two, know it's true. In two thousand, by the way, Batista comes in and hits triple H with a chair shot and puts Jr. on top. So thank God Jr. got the pin and he won the match. He hit his finish, which is apparently a Batista chair shot, uh, <laughs> during Oh five, Jr. steps down from his executive role. And he says, he does this to give him more time to focus on his health, his family and his business ventures. Uh, but in reality, doctors had discovered a serious issue with Jr.'s colon. Uh, he's, he's going to need some help and he's not in a good way. And on the October 10th, 2005 raw Vince is going to storyline fire him to give an explanation for his absence. And, um, this is a weird time because you've got all the McMahon characters involved here and, um, eventually there's a confrontation. Jr. is going to tell Stephanie that he's sorry that her mother, Linda got stunned. And then Stephanie slaps Jr. McMahon tells Shane to come down and the music of Linda McMahon hits. She makes her way down the ring. Vince says she looks lovely, but this is no place for her. Linda takes the mic says she can't let him continue this way. And the only way to garner respect is not by yelling and screaming or pitching a fit. It's by taking action. She goes over to Jr. and says on behalf of the entire McMahon family, you're fired. Uh, Stephanie and Vince laugh. Jr. can't believe it. And then Linda kicks him in the nuts. I mean, Linda McMahon kicked a guy in the nuts. What'd you think of this? Well, what would you want her to kick him? What do you think of this? <laughs> 
it's just so it's just not what you expect linda to do. i don't know what do you think of well, uh the way we, we get him off tv here well again uh, storyline wise i thought it was tremendous because people did love him and it was a great way to get the characters over that we were trying to get over that were going to be there for a while. So let's do it in a big way. You know, would, it been, would it have been better if he just disappeared? So, ah, JR sick. Okay, he's not going to be on TV anymore. Sorry, folks. Or do something we're still talking about all these years later. No, I mean, he kicked him in the nuts. There you go. Right it there. Gives, it gives a good. Both goodbye. of them. Thank you. Uh, after Raw's over, he even gives a uh, goodbye speech on WWE.com. And, uh, I mean, we're continuing the angle. I guess we should fast forward to the, uh, October 24th Raw. But before we do, I want to mention that it's around this time that supposedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, Vince McMahon tried to hire Mike Goldberg, the voice of the UFC away from Dana White and the Fertitta family in the middle of the night. Uh, his contract was coming due. And, uh, even though, you know, these guys are former network partners, you know, where they both have programming on the same stations, that doesn't matter to Vince. Allegedly he's looking to replace JR. Mike Goldberg should be the guy. And, uh, according to the legend, uh, Mike Goldberg asked the former Nevada state athletic commissioner, his advice and, uh, Mr. Ratner being a big wrestling fan said that would be a horrible decision because fans know that's JR spot. The deal winds up not going down, but the, the negotiation tactic by Vince McMahon to try to get him to no show a UFC pay-per-view and instead show up on raw has been criticized. I don't know how much that's true. How much is not true. What do you remember about the negotiations to bring in Mike Goldberg here? I had absolutely nothing to do with the negotiations with Mike Goldberg. Just hold about it heard about it for, you know, through all my years, over 32 years dealing with Vince McMahon, I've never, ever once ever, you know, heard him tell somebody not to make a contracted deal that, that, uh, for something like that, he would want a Goldberg to finish out his commitments and do that shit. I, I just don't see him doing that. Uh, so I think that a lot of that is rumor and innuendo and, and dirt sheet bullshit, if that's where it came from. But I heard that they were negotiating with Mike and that it fell through and that basically UFC came back with a better offer. And that's all, literally all I know. I mean, it was, I wasn't involved in it, didn't care about it. And we moved on, but so I, I unfortunately don't have a whole lot on that one. The October 24th raw, here's the big announcement. He says that when JR was fired, he decided to hire coach. Of course, this is Vince McMahon. He's saying, I always knew that JR was full of crap. And, um, he's, he's going to do a bit of an angle here. I think everybody knows this is Dr. Heine. And as a reminder, JR's off TV because he's, uh, got an issue with his colon and, uh, they do a skit where Dr. Heine, Vince McMahon, uh, goes into JR's colon on raw and pulls out a Steve Austin doll and yells stone cold, stone cold. And the last thing he pulls out is JR's head. It's a, a mannequin head or some sort of head that's been fashioned like JR. And Vince says, we've solved the problem. You've had your head up your ass. This was a successful operation. And that's the last segment on raw. Um, 
this obviously had to be upsetting or annoying or frustrating or mean spirited had to hurt Jr. What'd you think of the creative here? Well, first of all, no, it wasn't mean spirited. And I think that a lot of people had problem with it from the standpoint of the reality of Jr. having surgery. Now, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this and I don't give a fuck. Um, this was done out of, it was done out of love and it was done out of respect to Jr. from the standpoint of this, we're going to do a skit. We're going to make fun of your shit. We're going to laugh at it. We're going to have fun with it because we want you to get through this and, and look at it. We had, look, I have a weird sense of humor. Like I was talking about my teeth earlier when, when I got out of surgery and my wife called Vince to let her know that, you know, Hey, I'm out of surgery. He says, well, let him know. He says, how's he looks? Is he okay? Made sure I was fine. And he goes, well, if his teeth look funny, let him know I'm laughing my ass off, which when I came to, and I heard that I laughed my ass off because that's what I would have said to him. And is you, you go through this. I was, I would send him pictures of my face all fucked up after the surgery. And he would send me back, you know, <coughs> laughing shit. That's our humor. That's our, our way of communicating. I mean, that's, and this was done to put even more sympathy on Jr. But I, more than anything, say, Hey, Jr. man, thinking about you and we know you're going to be okay. And we're thinking about you. <laughs> People will take anything and turn it into mean-spirited shit. If you can look at it in any way you want to look at it. Um, was it in good taste? Fuck no. That's debatable. That's debatable. And how, you know, again, what's your, what you think is good taste and what other people think is good taste. Hang on now. Let's um, pretend for a minute when, when your wife, Stephanie was sick, that Jr. tried to do a skit like this, you wouldn't have thought anything about if, that was fucking fun. If my wife, Stephanie was a character on television, maybe yes again, but it wasn't, we knew J first of all, we knew Jr. was out of the woods. We knew that he was okay and was told about it ahead of time. And it was, and again, it was done to keep his name out there and to have a little fun with it and let him know, God damn it, man, you got to laugh at this shit and you got to move on. And you're, he was okay. And again, my wife isn't a, a, a television character. She's not a public figure. We know that while Jr. was, was out of pocket here, uh, Joey styles becomes the new announcer on raw after recovering Jr. does some behind the scenes work. He comes back to do Saturday night's main event in the six also calls the raw matches at WrestleMania 22 and returns to play by play on May 8th after Joey styles quit in storyline. In October of 06, his contract would expire and they hadn't come to terms on new ones. So the next month in November, he signed a one-year deal. When we fast forward to March of 07, JR goes into the hall of fame and he's inducted by Steve Austin. I know being in the hall of fame still means a lot to JR, but uh, it's probably uh pretty touching that Steve Austin's the guy to put him in, huh? Sure. Because it's the biggest star in the company and probably one of his best friends in life. So you put those two together and that magnitude of having a guy like stone cold induct you is a huge deal. And so, yeah, I, I know for a fact that meant the world to 
JR to have that honor. We just did a whole show on this on grilling JR, but in June of 08, there's the, the draft and JR's drafted to SmackDown and he doesn't know that he's going to be drafted to SmackDown. And, uh, he had a very visible response. And as you would say, he sold it. And we, we covered that in long form on grilling JR. So if you want JR's full take, we literally just did it a few weeks ago. Chat me up though, from your perspective, uh, was JR's cardinal mistake writing that he didn't want to be drafted because that almost guarantees that Vince McMahon's going to draft you. Does it not? No, the reason he was drafted was best for the product and no one knew and no one was smartened up to where they were going to go and what they were going to do if they were going to be drafted and if they weren't going to be drafted. So Vince wanted the real reactions from the talent. So when we took those shots, those were real reactions. Um, JR just took it harder than anybody else. And I, I think that, you know, he didn't want to be drafted, didn't want to be away from King, didn't want to split up, but we were shaking things up. So we did a lot of talent that were unhappy with it being drafted from one show to another. But again, it went back to shaking the shows up and moving on, you know, trying something different. You left in November of 08. And after you left, JR wrestled three more matches, once against Michael Cole in 2011, uh, unbelievably an extreme rules, pay-per-view strap match in 2011 with Jack Swagger and Michael Cole on one side, JR and Lawler on the other. Uh, later in 2011, Jr. would team with John Cena and, uh, they would get a win over Alberto Del Rio and Michael Cole. And then ultimately Jr.'s uh, run as sort of a full timer with the company comes to an end in September of 2013. And that comes after a lot of criticism from, uh, an August 2k video game, uh, symposium in LA where supposedly, um, Jim Ross and, and Ric Flair had uh, had a few too many cocktails and that got off the rails. Now, of course, Jr. would deny that he was drunk, uh, and would say that, you know, his, his speech may have been affected, but that's from Bell's palsy and people just weren't hearing from him all the time. So maybe they, you know, whatever, but I know a lot of people know that Rick had lost his son Reed earlier that year and he was probably drinking too much. What, what did you hear about that 2k disaster? And then the fallout, which cost jr a business relationship well i think i heard all the rumor and innuendo that was out there i don't know to this day what you know fact from fiction i heard that both guys had been drinking all day and that several people had seen him drinking all day i spoke to jr specifically who said that he had not been um it was a train wreck no matter what it was and i don't know that jim was told uh, Jim didn't tell me that he was fired for that. And nor did I hear from anybody else that said, okay, Jim specifically was fired for that in any way, shape or form. It was just that he had moved to Oklahoma. He wasn't doing nearly as much as what he had been doing. And that was it. I mean, I think watching it because I did watch it, I thought that JR and everybody else involved in it, uh, should have taken steps to probably get Rick off the stage and, and protect Rick from himself at that point. We, Rick was in a bad place. Rick was in a highly emotional place and to, to allow it to continue. Uh, I think that was a lot of people's fault. And if, if JR were on top of his game 10 years ago, that JR would have 
bam, switch the subject. JR would have got done an end around and brought that thing back, back to where it needed to be instead of letting it go on the way that it went on. Um, but again, a lot of people could have helped that helped out in that situation and, and talent tried. It was just a train wreck. It was an unfortunate train wreck, but I have no, no knowledge whatsoever as far as what really happened there. Cause I wasn't there. Were you shocked to read in, in 2013 that his relationship with WWE came to an end? I mean, did you been in touch with him between 08 when you left and 13, when, when he's going to wrap it up? Yeah, we, I mean, we talked from time to time. Absolutely. Um, but it was, it was pretty casual and I'm never surprised at, you know, people coming and going it's, you never say never in this business. So anything can happen at any given time. And I did know that Jim, hell man, Jim was looking for a long time to just stop doing what he was doing and enjoy his Oklahoma football and Norman. So, uh, you say that enough, you know, I really wish I could just, you know, go do my football games. Okay. Congratulations. Go do your football games. I think everybody <laughs> knows that, that Jr. winds up working with new Japan from 2015 to 2018. And he pops back up at, uh, 2017's WrestleMania. Uh, he comes back to call the undertaker Roman reigns match. And that's not too terribly long after the tragic loss of his wife, Jan, uh, Vince McMahon presents him with a two-year deal with WWE and that came to an end earlier this year. And unbelievably Jr. signs a three-year deal with, uh, the new group, uh, all elite wrestling. He's going to be a commentator. And I think his, uh, other title is senior advisor. Is, is it a little weird after all this time to see Jr. you know, wearing the Jersey for another team? No, he's worn jerseys for a lot of other teams and, and you know, we'll, we'll probably wear jerseys for other teams going forward in the future. I, I wish JR nothing but the best. And it's, you know, through our life, we've been through a lot of ups and downs personally and professionally, um, through it all. We we've always remained friends and, and always, you know, been there to kind of commiserate one way or another. So it's another chapter in his life. It's another chapter in my life. And, and we just, you know, move on and, and take it from there because we're going to see each other and, and everybody's going to see, you're going to see each other down the road one way or another, somewhere, sometime, somehow. And I just go back and I look fondly on my memories of traveling with Jim back in the day and all the time that we spent together. Um, we had a hell of a run and now we're on new runs in different directions and going to be some fun. Where do you rank Jr. and Jerry Lawler as a commentating team all time? Um, you know, I, my favorite is Bobby and gorilla and King and, and Jr. are probably number two or three, probably number two. What do you think? Cause uh, they just had, so, they just had such great chemistry. What do you think is going to be uh, Jim's legacy in the business? A cowboy hat. Let's do some rapid fire questions here. Uh, Jonathan Young wants to know, JR had some of the greatest calls in wrestling history. Which one is Bruce's favorite? Stop cold, stop cold, stop cold, stop cold. Doug says, JR has always said his favorite partner was King, but my favorite partner at Jim's was Paul Heyman. When they did commentary together, Paul was able to get JR mad and show real emotion. It made it real. He pulled the emotion out of him. Which combo did Bruce prefer, JR and King or JR and Heyman? They're both great, uh, for, for two different reasons. Heyman, as you just said, Heyman 
would get you back in and make it real and have a, it was, it was different. Uh, but King and Jr. had great timing together and told good stories. Sam wants to know, Bruce, would you normally have the finishes in Jr.'s run sheets or did he like to be surprised by the outcomes in order to deliver a more genuine performance? God, Jr. wanted to know everything. Uh, Danny writes some of Jr.'s best work came from when he was salty slash angry. Who was the best at winding Jr. up? Um, I could, I could be pretty good. <laughs> uh, Brian Gwertz wasn't bad at getting him a little riled up. Vince was great at getting him riled up. Uh, Ken says Jr. has often said that Vince would mock his Bell's palsy behind the scenes. Uh, did Bruce ever have the balls to say something to Vince? If that was really true. I think everybody has made fun of the way Jr. talks, just like we have on this <laughs> podcast, Sassafras. And, you know, it's done out of everything that I've ever done. I think everything Vince has done would done to their face. So it's it is weird. Yes, though, I, because, I've done Jr. right to his face. Well, I have too. And it's weird because when you and I did the show uh, with him in New York this year, uh, when, when I did the, her, he said, God damn, Connie, are you making fun of my bell's palsy? You and I looked at each other like, what? No, fuck that. Never no, we're just making fun of you. Yeah. We're making fun of you. I'm not, not a <laughs> facial paralysis thing. We're just, no, I mean, I don't view us saying her and sassafras as, as a bell's palsy mock, but I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some of our listeners think we're mean spirited. That's certainly not my intent. And I don't believe it's yours when we do that either. Absolutely not. Uh, Justin wants to know, I just watched judgment day of two for the first time. JR had some biting comments about Heyman on commentary. Was there legit heat between the two or was Jim just super in character? Oh God. I think that Jim was just super in character, but Paul is a natural antagonist that will get you fired up. So Paul knew what buttons to push. Jonathan wants to know, how do you think JR would have done as a heel manager instead of concentrating on announcing and talent relations? You tried it a few times. What if he really got a shot? Well, I think if Jim would have embraced being hated, look, to be a heel manager, to be a heel, you have to want to be hated. You have to enjoy being hated. Jim doesn't like being hated. Jim wants everybody to love him. Uh, lots of questions. I mean, like every other question here is why do you think Vince hates Jr? Set the record straight on that. Vince doesn't hate Jr. I know that for a fact, no hatred whatsoever. He likes Jr. has a lot of respect for Jim Ross. No hatred in any way, shape, or form. And anybody that thinks that, you are 100% completely wrong. John wants to know, did anyone ever rib Jr. from Gorilla by telling, this, telling him to say something silly or unusual? Oh, I'm sure throughout. Yeah, I'm sure that happened. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, if Jr. wasn't available to work for WWE, who would have been the choice to replace Gorilla Monsoon or Vince as lead play-by-play -play announcer? The insinuation being, if Jr. is the first draft pick, who's the second draft pick? I don't know that we necessarily had one. We were, we were trying out a lot of different people. For example, Joe Fowler, uh, who actually became a pitch man for infomercials and things like that was somebody that we tried to put in that position. And we were looking, you know, there was Sean Mooney. There were a lot of different people that were coming through that we were trying to groom. Last question here. This is from uh, Jonas and this is pretty fun. He says, well, uh, I wish to ask Bruce this question about Jr. Has Bruce ever seen, heard, or been told about a Jr. outburst laughing during a live broadcast of something that a heel said or did during a promo or match? Now you and I get tickled here on the show. 
I mean, we, we had a promo a few months ago that we were both laughing so hard. We probably <laughs> peed our pants a little and I left some of it in, but I tried to clip some of it out, but in a live broadcast, it does feel like occasionally something's going to tickle you and you just can't stop laughing. Has that ever happened with Jr. that you know of? I don't recall anything off the top of my head. You know, Jr. is pretty goddamn composed. And when you're in that environment, you know, you're trying to stick to the story and that there's times that you can get tickled, but, um, not that I can recall. Uh, that's that's fun, man. Well, listen, I had fun talking about Jim Ross this week. I hope that you guys enjoyed what we're doing here as well. I want to remind everybody we've got lots of fun upcoming shows coming your way. If you haven't already hit the subscribe button, uh, tell your friends about us. The show has continued. I know lots of folks assumed, oh, well, that'll be the end of, uh, something to wrestle. No, it's not. The train continues, baby. And, uh, coming your way, I guess we should go ahead and give you a bit of a rundown. We do have the rock coming your way. Lots of people have wanted to know, are you still doing that? We are, uh, on August 2nd, his new movie is going to debut. So we're going to cover, uh, the rock in his early years on August 9th, we're going to hit 20 years of Jericho. And through the rest of August, we're going to hit a lot of the different SummerSlams. 04 with Orton and Benoit, 99 with Austin Mankind and Triple H. And one of my favorites, 89 with Hogan and Brutus against Savage and Zeus. It should be a great time. Uh, if you'd like to keep up with us on social media, we're at Pritchard Show. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. Shaka Khan. I still think you do it best. We should just keep it with you doing it. Well, we just did. I know. I'm just saying, like, I'm, I'm voting that we made the right call. All right. So, but did you say that like, we'll be back like next week with Bruce Pritchard and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I, I, did I, did I jump? I jumped again. I'll be honest. I I prematurely shock a con to myself. You you, prematured yourself. Don't you hate when you, when you premature shock a con yourself? I I, I really do. Let's start. Okay. We'll try it again. Here we go. We'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka I think your first Shaka was better, but we'll leave it with that one. Okay. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.